Go ahead, Panda. Show us what you can do. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I just ate. Um, so I'm still digesting. So my kung fu might not be as good as later on. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dudes. Dude. His dudeness. Duder. El Duderino. Dude. Dude. Dedicated to a single objective. The conquest of the universe. You have offended my family, and you have offended the Shaolin Temple. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Don't tell monkey. And now, here's the dudes. Everybody was kung fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they fought with expert timing. There were funky Chinamen from funky Chinatown. They were chopping the Welcome, everyone, to the Legion of Dudes podcast. I'm your host, Russell Latham, and I am joined tonight by Mr. Adam Umack, Johnny M., and Jim Gypsy Cafe D. Tonight, we're going to be talking about The Immortal Iron Fist, Volume 1 Omnibus by Ed Brubaker, Matt Fraction, and art by David Aja. Uh, this will be part one of two. We'll be talking about issues one through seven. Um, this is something that's been on Mr. M's list for a long time. It's one of those that... After I read it, I was kind of both cursing and blessing myself for not having read it before, cursing it because it took so long, but blessing it because I waited for the omnibus, which was a nice treat. So I got to read it all pretty much in darn near one sitting. I, I just I liked it so much. But before we get into that, we have a little bit of house cleaning to do. I think, Adam, you have a, a special thank you that we need to shout out to, to, to one of our listeners slash um, friends. Yeah, have you guys ever heard of this guy, Frank A. Rincon? I think it's French. Um, well, anyway, this guy from this half-hour wasted podcast, Frank something or other, um, he was generous and kind enough to give a donation to us. Uh, he answered our episode 50 donation drive call. And in all seriousness, we'd like to thank uh, Frank over at Half Hour Wasted. We appreciate it, friend. Um, your donation helps us keep ourselves healthy, wealthy, and alive. And, um, well, just like Dan, last episode, we'd like to, um, you know, dedicate this one to you, Frank. So hopefully we'll do you a solid and uh, make you proud and hopefully get to read an Iron Fist. So thanks to Frank for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, and anybody else who has the urge, if uh, you'd like an episode dedicated to you, My address. just hop on over to... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My address yeah. is... No, <laughs> go ahead, John. <laughs> Head on over to uh, hhwlod.com. There's a little donate button. It'll help us out a lot. We just mapped out year two for the Legion of Dudes, and uh, we're broke. <laughs> so anything helps. Yeah, if uh, Bill is the voice of uh, Half Hour Wasted and Brad is the uh, the anger and bile, then uh, Frank is definitely the heart. <laughs> okay, so I think I have a confession to make. I think we all have a confession to make. Um, we just did an audio blog on it yesterday that'll go up soon, but I think we all have the Arkham Asylum fever. I don't think there's any one of us on the Legion of Dudes or Half Hour Wasted almost at this point that hasn't rushed out to their local Best Buy GameStop or wherever um, 
and picked up Batman Arkham Asylum, including me, um, and have just kind of instantly fallen in love with it and, and is our new obsession. Am, am, I, am I alone on this guy? We're right with you, and uh, I would like to make one correction. Ken is the only other member who hasn't run out, and so I kicked him off this episode. Out of a gun. Nice. So Ken is not allowed to be with us tonight because he doesn't have Arkham Asylum. There's always one. <laughs> it, it is a great game. Brad got it. Bill, uh, Frank's talking about getting a system just to get the game. Reed got it. Dan got it. The three of us got it. Uh, and, I, you know, I got it myself. It's just like, geez, oh, man. <laughs> We've uh, successfully uh, made Eidos' qu- uh, quota for the next, uh, you know, quarter here. So go figure. Yeah, the store I got my copy at, I got the very last copy. So it must be uh, doing pretty well. John, you went to the midnight sale. How'd that go? I, I didn't. I went to the midnight sale, but I didn't end up getting the game. I went and saw um, Inglorious Bastards in the same like parking lot strip mall as the EB Games. And so after the movie was over, uh, the movie ended at about 11.20. So I was a little bit early, but when I swung around the parking lot, there was like, I don't know, 15, 20 people outside and like eight of them were in costume. <laughs> so I decided it probably wasn't for me. And I just went to bed and bought it at 10 in the morning the next day. Yeah, bad dreams. <laughs> that was probably a good call in <laughs> retrospect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a little a little too intense uh, for me. If it was like five minutes to 12, I probably would have like waited in the car and jumped out at midnight. But it was a little too long a wait, and there was a little too much action. You didn't want to stealth it from the car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there was like a 300-pound Harley Quinn, and I didn't really want to fight her for the spot. <laughs> clowns are scary, but fat clowns <laughs> are horrifying. <laughs> So before before we get into things, and, and this is not a uh, this is not meant to be like uh, a dig. This is an honest question, just to kind of go back to something we've talked about in the past. Is anybody still buying Wednesday comics? Okay. Yeah. No, I am. <laughs> and part I of am. Oh, cool. I am. And are you are you still happy with the uh, quality and content and what's happening with it? And you're still leaving it around and people that don't read comics or picking it up like it's all good i've been uh yeah uh, my staff has been following along with some of their favorite stories i can't say that every story is is golden there are a few i don't like uh i'm not a big fan of the wonder woman story that's going on uh i didn't think it was that great i'm not a big fan of the teen Titans story i don't think it's that great either but on you know on the whole uh generally it's gotten me to uh go to the lcs and pick them up i'm still reading it so awesome that's what it's all about so I, I tapped out this week. I had to buy this omnibus for the show, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll we'll go ahead and cancel Wednesday Comics just because I had to pick up this beast." But like, um, <laughs> listening to other podcasts and stuff, you know, some guys will drop you know the four bucks or whatever it is, you know, for it, and then they'll just skip ones altogether. Like, even if it was terrible, I mean, I'd probably still read it considering the amount you get for the price. Like, I I couldn't see buying it and then skipping over the Teen Titans or the Metal Men. I mean, I like I like the both. You know what I mean? But just to throw out some random ones, but I don't think that I would skip any material for something that's that uh, consolidated, I guess is a good way to put it. You know, I, that that's kind of beyond me. But, you know, for what it's worth, um, it was a good run, but I had to go to the side of, the, of Marvel and Iron Fist for this week. So, sorry. I, I won't be buying it in trade, I'll tell you that much. There's no way I'm buying those individually. Now, if they collected the whole thing together, you know, that's a no-brainer but I don't think I'm going to buy it as individual trades. Is there enough material for an individual trade for each story? Aren't they, I think I thought they said they were going to do that uh, a couple weeks ago at one of the cons, that they're going to put like a couple of them together. Right, right. Yeah, I could see two or three being one trade. 
Huh. I've got the first four. I pre-ordered the first four. Um, I have them. I, to be honest with you, I've kind of flipped through it. I haven't read it yet. I'm kind of waiting. Um, I'm probably going to hit the LCS. I, I didn't want to commit to more than four, but I think I'm going to go ahead and, and try and catch up on it and then just kind of read a bunch of them in one sitting. So um, other than kind of a quick glance, really, I'm, I'm just kind of letting them pile up. Cool deal. Yeah, it's for Russ's birdcage. He's going to line it later. He does, he's not going to read DC stuff. Come on. Who's, who are we kidding? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We want to uh, maybe rock out some episode 50 questions and do that thing? Yeah. So I've got two questions. Um, one from Alpha Fright. If we could afford one book a month, and only one book, what book would it be and why? So for me, it would be Uncanny X-Men. No surprise there, but really just because I, you know, I've got my run from, you know, pretty much 141 up to current. That's about, you know, 90, 95% complete. So, um, the completest in me and the X-Men freak in me would just not allow myself to, to stop buying it. So if there was only one, it would be that one. And luckily, lately it's been, it's been pretty spot on. So, uh, that's, that's mine. Now, Russ, I was listening to um, the Uncanny X-Cast guys on Comic Geek Speak pretty recently. Maybe maybe it was already like a month ago at this point. And they were recommending Uncanny, the Fraction stuff, as a good jump-on point. Would you agree with that? Like, if, you, if someone hasn't been reading X-Men recently and has to pick one of the books to kind of get started, would you yeah. think it would be Uncanny? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I mean, it, in all reality if you if you wanted to jump onto the x-men universe and just be able to kind of maybe even out for a while or just need to catch up on where things are at and wanted to stick to the core book really if you read house of m messiah complex and then jumped on to fractions run um right around you know 500 a little before 500 i, I think you'd have enough to kind of know what's going on um, and right now they're doing that utopia crossover with dark x-men and it's it's actually been really good um, so yeah, I, th- I think, I think if you jumped on, you wouldn't be totally lost. Cool. How about you, Jim? I have to go with a new one that I just, uh, started reading called Asterios Polyp. It's, uh, the new David Mazzucchelli project. And, uh, I've only gotten the first issue, but man, is it awesome. It's really good. Mazzucchelli is back in a big way. And, uh, he just really, with this comic really shows off what a master he is in the comic book art form. Super good. I don't want to even say what it's about or anything. Just you know, let you enjoy it for yourself. But it's called Asterios Paula. Definitely worth checking out. I had it recommended to me by an L- by my LCS guy, and I really loved it a lot. I mean, so. Now there's a hardcover for that, right? So that's completed. I don't know. I've only read the one floppy. So, but it's awesome enough that I, I want to get it every month. Mister Yu. Green Lantern next? No, no. I'm going to go with Invincible. Um, <laughs> I'd have to buy Green Lantern and Green Lantern Core. I'm going to go with Invincible. I mean, I've been reading that for how many years, you know, and that's one of the five monthlies that I get. So I'm going to have to stick with that one. Kirkman has done me good, and I'm going to keep supporting the comic. Plus, they've had some serious, uh, like, holy crap uh, developments lately in Invincible. Yeah, yeah they have. <laughs> yeah, I'm a hardcover guy on Invincible and Walking Dead. I don't know how it ended up that way. I guess I was so late to the party that there was already like two or three hardcovers for each book when I started reading it. So it was just easier to do it that way. That's and I've awesome. somehow fought the urge to start buying floppies, but so I'm like way behind. This is difficult because a month ago I probably would have said Thor, but now that we have new team on it, 
And I really want to say Daredevil, but I don't know what Mr. Diggle is going to do with that title. So, I think I'm going with Iron Fist. <laughs> They've already switched writers on me once, and I'm still loving it, so I'll stick with it. Okay, question number two. Since this episode has been uh, sponsored and shout out to, to Mr. Frank Rincon, we'll answer one of his questions. So his question is the most underrated title, and why do you like it? Um, for me, I'm going to say the most underrated title is Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, the sales numbers haven't been off the charts with it. Um, they're, they're probably, I think they're in the low 20s, 30, 30,000. Um, but it's just a fun book. Um, I've never been really into Marvel Cosmic. They're kind of taking a little bit of a gamble with the book and trying to get some of that uh, um, annihilation um, fallout on it. So, uh, you know, part of it for me, this is normally something I would wait for trade or hardcover, but I want to I want to really throw my support to the book and try and get it to, to survive. Abnett and Landing are doing the writing, and it's been it's just been a lot of fun. Um, there's been a little bit of fourth wall breaking um, going on, which is kind of kind of funny, but not not like Deadpoolish. Um, it's more like uh, they kind of wait to like they're being interviewed um, by someone, so it's, it's kind of interesting, like they're talking to a camera, not necessarily the reader. Uh, him or herself, um, and it's. I, I kind of ducked away from it a little bit with the War of Kings because I haven't been yet War of Kings, but I'll probably get that in hardcover, and then probably catch up with it. But it's just been a lot of fun. The writing is excellent. The art's been pretty solid, um, and the characters have all kind of been through a bit of a metamorphosis recently. So it's it's kind of easy to jump on. You don't need to know a whole lot of history to be able to just kind of enjoy the book and and go along for the ride. So that's that's my pick. Most underrated. Uh, I guess I have to go with Iron Fist. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Just because it's. Uh, I mean, you know. I mean, I mean, it was a character that's kind of a laughing stock and kind of a second, third tier character for so long. And now that I've caught up and read this omnibus, I mean, they're really. Uh, I've done a lot with the character, and it's really interesting. And I don't know. I'm. I'm. I'm really psyched to see him turning around. Turn it around. I was a big fan of, you know, all, all these. Characters. Characters that are coming back into prominence in Marvel, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Spider-Woman. Uh, I was a big fan back in the 70s, you know, so it's great to see them you know, come back around and, you know, get the respect that they're due. So I'll go with Iron Fist. Adam? And a surprising twist, I'm going to say Wonder Woman by Gail Simone and Aaron Lopresti. Um, I picked up Wonder Woman The Circle from a recommendation from Darren and Paul over at the Legion of Substitute Podcasters. And... Here you have an A-tier character with, um, it's it's still in, you know, the normal Wonder Woman sales. I mean, it got, you know, a little bit of a bump when Gail jumped on. Um, but the consistency is certainly there. I mean, I, I would certainly like to see a kind of, I, I guess, kind of a stronger push for um, a, a traditional character, maybe, you know, with the alter ego and stuff like that, which, you know, maybe that's coming down the road. I'm not really sure. They've certainly brought you know, some characters back and, and whatnot, and there have been a number of reimaginings, but you know what? Wonder Woman has been pretty doggone good lately, so I'm going to go with that one. My other choice was going to be Rebels with uh, Tony Vedder. That's uh, coming on, you know, everybody's radar. I think that book's about, you know, three feet high and rising, but um, with the kind of a revamp of Star of the Conqueror, that, that certainly drew some attention and equally some ire. Um, as, as far as its early reviews of the run. But so far, so good. I like, um, so I'm going to go with probably both of those, Wonder Woman and Rebels. Well, I'm glad you did that because I have two that I wanted to mention also. I'm definitely going to start with Dark Avengers. It's probably being bought by a lot of people, so it's hard to say that it's underrated. But 
I think it got bad hype because of the end of Secret Invasion and people not thinking that Dark Reign was a great idea. But that book's been super solid from the beginning. So definitely Dark Avengers. And my other pick is War Machine that Greg Pak has been writing. The War Machine book was really good. And I just found out that they're ending it at issue 12, which, you know, go figure. You're going to have War Machine in a movie in six months and you're going to kill the book after 12 issues. I, I don't get the marketing strategy. You know, the numbers, I'm sure, were not good. But um, if you like Greg Pak stuff, I definitely check out War Machine. Rhodey's like a cool character. Um, and they made him this tragic character now that he's kind of like tied to the machinery because of some accident that they haven't mapped out yet. But he's more like uh, cyborg now than person in a suit. So that's been really good. Well, if you guys are getting two, I got to mention Hickman's Secret Warriors, dude, because that, yeah. that has been awesome lately. And I really, really am enjoying where he's going with that book. And uh, real quick, I guess the Asterios Polyp thing that I got was a preview uh, thing or whatever because I'm looking here and you're right John it is a full uh, graphic novel and uh, the preview little thing I got looked like a, an indie floppy so I guess that's my mistake no that's cool and now you have a nice uh, hardcover for your Christmas list or birthday list or there you go nice guy list or whatever alright so I guess we're ready for some Immortal Iron Fist Omnibus I'm pretty jacked up I'm on vacation this is my favorite book I have a cold beer so it's on so let's do this. I first wanted to talk a little bit about, since it's so tied into uh, martial arts and Eastern culture and all that, I think that's something that's really bled into our pop culture, uh, including comics and movies and everything else. I mean, it go, it's, this is nothing new. I mean, Batman has, you know, Eastern philosophy ties with his training and the martial arts aspect. So I just wanted to go around and ask you guys if you're into anything specifically tied to this kind of material, whether it be like old Kung Fu movies or if you like the Eastern philosophy of some of the, you know, higher thinking characters or any TV shows, movies, or anything that that's tied to the martial arts. So why don't we start with Mr. Latham? I tend to be a little more biased towards when they bring, for whatever reason, a lot of the martial arts stuff into the American style of, of movie making. So, you know, as a kid, of course, on the Saturday mornings, you'd watch all the bad kung fu movies with the horrible dubbing and the whole nine yards, watch, you know, a million people beating the crap out of each other and, and loved it. Um, I wouldn't call myself like a connoisseur, although I, I, te- I tended to, in more recent time, like when Jet Li or Jackie Chan or any of those guys, when some of their foreign flicks end up, you know, being distributed locally, you know, I've tried to pick those up, Chow Yun-Fat, you know, some of the House of Flying Daggers and, you know, some of those flicks to pick up and really start to kind of broaden my horizons a bit into some of that. But my, and, and it's funny, I, I, I bring it up just because it's kind of been a recent thing that I've been, I've been pushing on everybody else, but my, probably my, one of my favorite, I guess you call it martial arts movies of all time, is John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. Um, and it recently came out on Blu-ray, but to me it has all of the things um, incorporated in the Kung Fu style movies where you've got, you know, at the beginning you've got, you know, guys in yellow versus guys in red, and it's just this all out, you know, they go from beating the daylights out of each other to shooting each other up with guns and their swords and knives. And so it's, it's kind of like a combination of, you know, the Eastern, you know, philosophy Kung Fu style action movie with the U.S. style loudmouth action hero, you know, guy that's obnoxious and all that, that kind of stuff. And I just, I just, I love that movie to death. And when it came out recently on Blu-ray, I, 
I snagged it day one, and I've been trying to push it on everybody else to, to get two. Um, so that's 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 kind of where I sit sit with it. Jim, I know you're a classic kung fu guy, right? Yeah, I kind of what Russ was saying. You know, I uh, late Saturday night after Saturday Night Live when I was a kid and a teenager, uh, they would uh, show kung fu movies, uh, Five Deadly Venoms, Drunken Master, the Wu Tang movies, all that kind of stuff. And while I don't have as big a collection of them as I would like, I do enjoy them a lot. I also like some of the newer stuff, you know, um, the John Woo stuff, and then uh, you know, Once Upon a Time in China, um, Iron Monkey. Uh, you know, Kill Bill. I, I really, I, I, when I was, when I was a, a little, a little tiny geek, growing up and you know, eight, nine, ten years old, the whole kung fu, you know, Bruce Lee craze was just sweeping across America. So I, um, you know, as a little kid, I got, I got into it, and I just kind of had an affection for that uh, source material, you know, my whole life. Um, I, I, plus when I was, I used to read uh, the Master of Kung Fu. Back when uh, Doug Mank and uh, Paul Galassi were on it, and uh, that is still some of the best comic book art. I would, I would stack uh, Paul Galassi's uh, Master of Kung Fu against any comic book art, and uh, it's just you know beautiful stuff. And uh, of course, Iron Fist back in the day when he first came out, and then the '80s when he was paired with uh, with uh, Power Man Luke Cage on Power Man Iron Fist uh, Heroes for Hire comics. So. I uh, I enjoy the genre uh, for you know for what it is. I like the you know the quote unquote classier kung fu movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Hero, or House of Flying Daggers. But I also like the really cheesy uh, you know redubbed uh, kung fu movies like Five Deadly Venoms. Um, I, I have a, a bunch of the Satoichi films uh, about the blind samurai. You're the blind swordsman. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I even like some of the more uh, you know uh, modern stuff that's a little more violent, like uh, Ichi the Killer, or um, you know, one um, uh, I thinking of Lady Vengeance or, or things like that. So. Right. Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. So, right. It's funny how we keep trying to borrow for films, and the the Asians are ahead of us always, like. They were doing math scores. The, they were they were doing the the kung fu stuff, and then we started making our versions of the kung fu movies. Then like John Woo was doing all the gun fu and slow motion stuff. So then we stole John Woo, and he started making American movies. So then they said, "Oh yeah, well we're gonna do wire fighting now." And then we started, you know, we had the Matrix and borrowed the wire fighting. So now they went to the brutal action. With the more of the old boy and like Ang Bak, if you guys have seen any of those movies, and it's more like street fighting, throwing people through tables and glass windows and stuff right like that, rather than the choreographed, you know. And I'm sure we'll start making those movies as well now. When you look at something like Fight Club or or things like that, so we've always been borrowing on the film side from from them to try to capture it. So Adam, you're the youngest guy. How do you feel about like the 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 classic stuff in quotes, of course. Well, I think it goes probably back to the classics uh, with my experience, at least. And like Jim, I mean, I followed this actor. I mean, he certainly left the indelible mark on, you know, um, pro- I would even say international cinema in Grasshopper. That actor's name is Ralph Macchio <laughs> of the Karate Kid. <laughs> that was, <laughs> um, yeah, I watched and, I watched that cinematic terror uh, many times and many times and over. And here's the shocker, it's being remade. I know. <laughs> um, they might as well make, remake The Great Outdoors and The Blues Brothers. Oh, wait, they already did. So, yeah, I watched The Karate Kid like a fool, and uh, that summer – 
Um, I took a I took a karate class at the elementary school, and I <laughs> busted my toe open and had to go home early, and I was a wuss. No, um, my probably as far as movies go, I would probably follow more than anything kind of the, the modern stuff. I, like you had mentioned, H. the Killer. One of my favorite all time, I guess, martial arts kung fu movies is Ghost Dog: Way of the Samurai. Sure, that is great one. Uh, one of Forrest Whitaker's probably Stranger Rules, Stranger Roles instead of The Last King of Scotland. And it was directed by an indie dude, uh, Jim Jarmusch. And I you know, loved Mystery Train and uh, Coffee and Cigarettes and all the other whacked-out stuff that he did in, in his uh, pseudo-David Lynch kind of way. But I really liked uh, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. It introduced me to Wu-Tang Clan, and they're nothing to with, and that's pretty awesome. But uh, the soundtrack to Ghost Dog is probably one of the coolest uh, indie soundtracks i've heard it's by the rizzo from wu-tang and it's just uh, uh, pretty much amazing and actually those guys with their one album enter the 36 chambers i mean talk about anyone who's you know completely indebted to kung fu movies it's probably those guys yeah that's a checklist of shaw brothers movies that yep. that album absolutely it, it's far you know i mean just the whole you know I don't want to call it mystery, but maybe like intrigue with like, you know, what are the 36 chambers and all that kind of stuff. It's certainly not Alfred Hitchcock's The 39 Steps, but I think it's, you know, certainly a good like romp as far as albums go. I mean, I remember playing that like crazy when I was a kid. Definitely. And for anyone interested, uh, a lot of the movies we just mentioned are being released like on Blu-ray all at the same time. They just put out a three-pack with Crouching Tiger, um, one of the other two movies in that three-pack, uh, House of Flying Daggers, and something else. And Hero is coming out, and Drunken Master, and Ichi the Killer. They're like pounding them all at once. So uh, my wallet says, ouch. Okay, so are we ready to jump into issue one? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, so issue one, uh, Immortal Iron Fist. Starts in the Kunlun Mountain Range. We have a something definitely set in the past. There are horsemen. Uh, it is the armies of the Khan. We have a figure walking by who we don't know who he is, but we can get a clue from the green and gold uh, that he might be tied to an iron fist. Uh, and we find out that he is, in fact, who am I? I am the immortal iron fist. So this is kind of like the first cool part of the book. If, if you're a fan of... Iron Fist in the history of comics, there's only one. So now, all of a sudden, they've opened up the history, and there was an Iron Fist back in 1227 by the name of Bei Ming. He stands before the Unstoppable Hordes, and he says, that's what I do, that's what I've always done. He holds them back. Uh, and then you flip the page, and you get an awesome double-page spread for the title page, The Last Iron Fist Story, Part 1. And you have Danny Rand saying, I am the Iron Fist. I hold back the storm when nothing else can. And he's fighting a bunch of um, Hydra ninja commando types. Um, really nice page. I dig the Aja art, definitely. And I, I love the coloring, too, the way the, the green and gold kind of stand out in the rainy scene. Something we see uh, here that we see through the whole book is when... Uh and something Brubaker did too in Captain America we see flashbacks to the other Iron Fists and when it's done it's done in a different art style than the uh, the Aja art which is very much puts me in the mind of like uh, Alex Malev uh, from Daredevil that almost uh, real, you know, that very realistic very shaded uh, look 
And the other big thing I wanted to mention is by, by setting up a whole legacy of Iron Fist and a whole line and lineage and history of Iron Fist, they really widened the character and gave it a lot more depth, I think, um, than just you know the Iron Fist being a one-off guy. Um, they, they've given him this whole history and legacy that he has to live up to, and it definitely plays out further even in, in the story arc. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I'm going to keep referring to is um, what's new and what is old, because Fraction and Brubaker definitely didn't rewrite and reboot the entire history. They've just added and, and expanded on it. You know, much like I talked about on last episode that this was like the Green Lantern for Marvel. Um, it's a lot like what Jeff Johns did with expanding on the background uh, and filling in the gaps rather than rebooting or retconning anything. Right. It um, just takes the basic elements that were already there in the original origin and kind of fills in what hasn't been filled in. You know, the- exactly. So we get a, a bunch of panels of, of Danny kicking some Hydra butt, and he flashes back to the first time he was in Kunlun, and we get this scene where his family is hiking out, trying to find the Mystic City, and uh, a pack of wolves catch up. Daddy falls off a cliff, and then Mommy tries to fight off the wolves for for Danny, um, and she doesn't make it, as we could tell by that one great panel that has the stark reds in all of the white and black for the blood that the wolves are drawing. And this is from the original origin. Uh, In the original story, they're led to death by Wendell Rand, who's Danny's father. He has a business partner, and he takes them on this trip, and he's trying to eliminate Wendell Rand so that he can run the company. Uh, So he actually throws Mr. Rand off the cliff, and then the mother is left to fight off the wolves. So it looks like they skipped that part. They're kind of condensing it, maybe making it a little less complicated. But he, he pretty much stuck with the origin of what happened to Danny's parents. Okay, so on the next page, we get some more um, kung fu action. We get a little bit more violent Iron Fist uh, with the neck snap. Not something that we've seen from his character in the past. Uh, like Jim was saying, he was kind of paired with Power Man for a long time, and they were kind of like a goofy duo and the heroes for hire type thing. So he's adding a little edge to him. And then we get another flashback of the actual Iron Fist origin. You have to basically put your hands into the heart of Shao Lao the Undying, which is this giant dragon. Um, and if you can pass that test, if you can defeat the dragon and touch his heart... You know, then you will be granted the power of the Iron Fist. Um, so they pretty much stuck with that as well. One interesting point, the original power of the Iron Fist was very literal. It actually gave your fist the ability to turn into iron. So it, back in the day when the Chi fired up and his hands um, you know, gained all the power, they were actually turning into iron and making his punch that much harder. So, of course, they're going to modernize that and make that a little more realistic, if you will, uh, for this story. But interesting that, again, he kept the origin, but he's going to tinker with it a little bit so that it's not ridiculous. That's a pretty awesome origin, I must say. Um, Not being an Iron Fist myself and rather being a Jelly Belly. Um, I can completely appreciate that. That's all you have to kill a dragon and take its heart. Like how like Arthurian uh, could that get as far, you know, as far. I mean, it's kind of medieval in a lot of ways, too. And with the castles and the architecture and stuff, there's a little bit of that in there. You know, I'm not going to go as far as to say, hey, this is like, you know, Sword of the Stone, but it's a, it's, it's a little close, you know? Yeah, yeah definitely. So now we're going to go to Rand Corp. And this is, again, a little bit more modernizing for the character of Danny Rand. He was always rich, but they never really got into 
where his money came from and what his front is. So he's much more of a Bruce Wayne character here. And he has Mr. Jaron Hogarth, who is his right-hand man. It's definitely his Foggy Nelson. Jaron holds down the fort while Danny goes and does superhero things. Um, and again, he's very Bruce Wayne. He's not... Well, he's Bruce Wayne that Batman is pretending to be. He's kind of like absent-minded when it comes to the business end of things. Probably not the best CEO. He's... He's got his hands uh, – he's busy doing other things. So there's this deal going down, and uh, Mr. Zhao wants to buy uh, this hyper uh, railroad. I'm looking for what they call it exactly. I knew that. Uh, but there's a super super fast train that Rand Corp has built, and they want to buy it. And Jaron is ready to sell it over. He's ready to get the contracts signed and Danny says no deal he's not happy with handing the contract over to these guys the Zhao says you must be a very wealthy man to turn down 10.6 billion dollars Danny's holding he, he doesn't want it he's not ready to hand over the tech he doesn't understand why they need it Jaron is extremely angry at him uh, again Jaron does all of the dirty work for the company and now Danny swoops in kind of at the last minute at this meeting and and blows the deal up so Jaron says, you know, you either fix things or I'm sending my resume to Stark. And it cuts to the last panel on the bottom of the page. And suddenly Danny is in the Iron Fist outfit. And he's going to do a little stealth in the Wago Corporation, which is the company that was going to buy uh, the trains to find out what's going on. It's, it's kind of interesting how they've, you know, ran. He's kind of been this socially conscious to some degree in the past, I mean, Jim, you probably correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but in the original Power Man and Iron Fist, that was always a little bit of the the back and forth between Luke Cage and and Rand was, you know, Power or Iron Fist was the you know spoiled rich kid had money all his life, and Luke was kind of the street level. So this, you know, their pairing, you know, when they were Power Man and Iron Fist was kind of like Danny's way of, you know, helping out the common man and kind of taking it, you know, back to to not just living in your ivory tower and and you know you know giving back to the community and help and help out in some way. So I, I like that you know Fraction and Brubaker have kind of come back to that in this and you know he's really you know sidestepping his deal strictly because he doesn't like China's you know um, human rights records and and that's a big deal for him to to not want to move forward with it. That sounds remarkably like Green Arrow. I mean, isn't that pretty much all the Ollie Queen's mo? Yeah, to, yeah, to some degree. Yeah, I, I think it's, it, it, it it is fairly close to that. Turns out Danny's uh, misgivings were well founded because as he does a little reconnaissance around the office, he realizes that the Wago Corporation is actually a front for our good friends at Hydra, who seem to be popping up a lot lately in the Marvel universe. Hydra's definitely uh, making a comeback and, and becoming a a little bit more of a serious threat. I love the page where he's he's kind of digging through the drawers, finding that everything's empty. You know, it was just like brand new furniture that they stuck in an office for the front. And then when he stands up, you know, you see all the red eyes of all the Hydra agents. And Danny has kind of that like, uh-oh, look on his face. On the next page, he jumps out the window with some gunfire behind him. Uh, he takes the fight to the rooftops. And Hydra, who's very confident at this point <laughs> brings out the mecha gorgon which is a pretty awesome giant uh mechanical spider very similar to the aim uh giant spider that we saw in uh captain america hey that's right that's right 
They must have, have a special in- on giant spiders at Costco or something. <laughs> so Danny's having his kind of like his life flesh before his eyes. We get a look at Luke Cage and Misty Knight and Colleen Wing. And the spider gets a piece of Danny's leg. And I love the little effect of the red highlight around the point of impact showing the wound. It, it, it did kind of remind me of the old Kung Fu movies where they'd like freeze it or slow it down right when the guy gets hit in, in you know, that certain spot. So I thought that was cool. And they keep that up in the hand-to-hand fighting too. Like each point of impact will be highlighted uh, by a box or a circle or, or something like that. Yeah, those insets are pretty cool. So Danny gets a little bit of a beat down by Mechagorgon, um, and he falls off the roof. And then on the next page, we cut to Bangkok, Thailand, which is kind of like the first time you're reading it, you know, it's kind of like, huh? You know, you're just in this very intense scene and you have kind of a cliffhanger. And, and now they send you to Bangkok with a character that we've never met before. Looks like he's in some kind of opium den and he's pretty out of it. And a lady, uh, Somebody asks for him at the door, and then they ask, is that him? Uh, Yes, it is the one you seek. Uh, And we see Davos on the next page. Davos is an old Iron Fist character. Um, He has a grudge with the Rand and the Randall family, I guess. And he's the one looking for this person who we, we don't know who it is yet. And somebody is talking to him. So there's definitely a mystical force here um, pulling Davos' strings. So this passed out... Uh, figure is laying on the floor and these two Asian women knock on the door. He answers the door. He says, I'm sorry, girls. I really think you've got the wrong. And he's about to finish his sentence and they pull out giant samurai swords and uh, try to take this stone guy down. And he, of course, is awesome at Kung Fu and he's able to break both their weapons. And then they say it is he at the same time. So whoever they're looking for, this is it. He says, who sent you? They answer the one who will have your heart. Uh, And with that, on the next page, the two beautiful Asian women turn into cranes and fly out the window. (laughs) And and we learn that this is Orson Randall, Iron Fist circa 1915, last seen in 1933. And he says, this isn't supposed to be my life anymore. It was supposed to be over. And that is the end of issue one. That seems an awful lot like what we'll be covering in October, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, when Alan Quartermain's basically in an opium den, and then he kind of gets this call to action. I, I, that's, this, that's the first thing I thought of when I read um, these last two pages here. Pretty cool, um, like, you know, the old, the, old, um, uh, the old seasoned guy is kind of brought back out of retirement. Yeah, and it's a great cliffhanger. I mean, he's staring on that last panel. He's staring with his shirt open, and he has the mark of the Iron Fist. So you know that he is or was an Iron Fist, which we've never encountered another Iron Fist besides Danny Rand, and and he doesn't want to be one. So it was a. I thought it was a really nice cliffhanger, and it got you thinking, you know, and and looking forward to issue two. It's kind of a cool cliffhanger because you see. When we started the issue, it, the story is called The Last Iron Fist Story, which is kind of a play because it's like, okay, does this mean, you know, they're going to, you know, given what's going on with Cap, especially since I've read it kind of after the fact, you know, are they looking to kill Iron, you know, Danny Rand off and they're they're going to bring in a new one or what's going on? And then as, as we see in this issue and then as the story progresses, they don't mean the last as in no more. They mean last as in... The, the one that came before. So I thought it was really interesting how on this page we get this cliffhanger of Orson Randall 
um, who was the, the prior Iron Fist and how really that will see through this arc that it's kind of really his, you know, for the most part, his story. He starts each issue with a flashback, and the flashback kind of validates and foreshadows what he's going to add to the story. In other words, the flashback here showed another Iron Fist, which was a surprise right off the bat, and now he's unveiling his his other Iron Fist. And as we start issue two, uh, we get a flashback to Pinghai Bay. We learn it's 1545, and the Iron Fist here is Wu Ao Shi, um, and she is going to fight off pirates. And the real interesting thing about this flashback is she is able to charge projections uh, from herself. So in the past... We've only known the Iron Fist to be able to charge his hands and use them as weapons. Uh, now this female Iron Fist was able to project flaming arrows um, that were charged with the Chi energy. And she used it to blow up like a ton of pirate ships. He, he's using this flashback to introduce something new into the legacy. I was just going to say again, he's not taking anything away from the past Iron Fist origin or stories or anything. He's just kind of adding to it. And it does make total sense that, you know, it wouldn't, that, you know, different Iron Fist would project their abilities differently. Right. And again, it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep comparing it to Green Lantern. You know, the, the Green Lanterns have the different ways that they, you know, make their constructs, right? Somebody's an artist, they draw it. Somebody's an architect, they build it from the inside out. You know, there's different ways to use the ability. Uh, so now we zip to modern day. Danny is falling through the ceiling of a building or, a, or a, an awning of a building, falling from the last issue. Hits the ground. An alarm is going off. Uh, the Hydra are asking, is he dead? You never know with that type, they say. So they, they, you know, obviously they know who he is. They're going to let him go because he's unregistered after all. So this is that gives us a timeline. You know, We're after Civil War here, and, and Danny is a a new Avenger and unregistered. So they figure if they leave him with the alarms going off, that shield is going to be able to pick him up. Danny blacks out. He wakes up on a, on a uh, bed with a nurse and Luke Cage. I, I figured they didn't mention her, but I'm figuring this is the night nurse from daredevil. It's totally the night nurse. Okay, cool. So Danny's kind of in recovery and he thinks he's okay to stand up. He gets the spins and he passes out. Uh, when he wakes up, Luke Cage has about 50 cartons of Chinese food. He says that Danny passed out three hours. Danny says that's crazy. It usually only takes you know a few minutes for him to recharge and, and realign his chi. So Danny and uh, Luke Cage have a nice scene eating some Chinese food, talking things over. Luke shows Danny a flyer for the new heroes for hire. So this is when Danny learns that Misty and Colleen have registered and they're on that side danny's pretty disappointed that he's working for that they are working for tony stark luke says it's like waking up in the morning and finding out the sun doesn't rise i really enjoyed this scene because it you know it gave us again it, it goes back and it lets you know how close danny and luke cage are um and it's tying it in with civil war without being real intrusive on the story a couple of pages danny's not registered the girls are you know, Luke and Danny are upset about it. They're good buddies. They're eating Chinese food, and, and we move on. I love the scene with him and Luke. It just shows how the history that these two guys have with each other, you know, and that, that they can talk to each other this way. And then he would be the one who, you know, Luke would, of course, be the one to show Danny, 
you know, and he says it's like pulling off a scab or, or setting a broken bone or whatever, he just passes him the flyer. Or when he wakes up and he's like, uh, do you know who you are? Yeah, my name's Danny Rand. I know Kung Fu. Oh, he always says stupid stuff like this when he gets knocked in the head, you know. They're just very, I mean, you can tell they have history with each other. They're good friends. They have mutual respect. And uh, I just, I love the tone and the, the dialogue here. It's just really, really pitch perfect for both characters, I thought. So we get Austin Randall trying to get back into the country, and he uses a little Jedi mind trick action, which again is a new power for Iron Fist as far as we know, um, to get past customs. I guess he doesn't have the proper passport or whatever, and, and he, he waves his hand and, and uh, kind of mystifies the guy. He's got swirlies in his eyeglasses, so that must mean that he doesn't know what's going on exactly. But policemen apparently do catch Orson Randall. They say, you need to come with us, sir. We saw what you just did, and we're Homeland Security, and you know now this is the age where superheroes have to come clean about who they are. So it's pretty believable, I guess. Not that Orson Randall was in the loop of any of that. He was kind of smoking his way through his days but uh he gets in the back of the police car and they take off and in a foreign language the officers are talking about uh orson in the back seat and saying we have him and tell davos we have you know the him in our possession and orson looks over and says you know i speak chinese right guys and he kicks and punches his way out of the police car and flips it over and um I, i like that i thought that was a clever page you know they didn't have to do it either. He kind of like got caught and escaped in one page, but it was a cool it was a cool scene anyway. Yeah, to me this is kind of that street level. It it reminds me a lot of the Captain America book. You know, it reminds me of you know the coloring and the style. Um, I mean, while they are different, but it just it just has that same espionage kind of feel. Blue Baker's writing this one, obviously, um, and writing Cap, so it it seems like there's some continuity. You know, between the two the two books, even even though they're they're completely separate and they're kind of in their own world. You know, with all the stuff going on around, you know, we kind of hear about the registration act. We hear about going on the background, but again, these are books that Bootmaker's writing, Daredevil and Iron Fist. We kind of see that continuity. It's that same street level art style. Um, it's you know, even though the the books aren't related, you kind of see that continuity throughout. That they're you know they're not. everything is very consistent with what he's he's working on. Yeah, definitely. I definitely get a feel that they're happening in the same world. So he kicks his way out of the cop car, and then we cut to Danny in training, and his mind's kind of wandering to, like, the heroes for hire and that they've gone to register. Um, And Jaren walks in, and Jaren hands over the papers, basically that uh, the Wago Corporation is going to try, like, a corporate takeover of Rand now. So they're going to get their trains one way or the other. And Danny, of course, is like completely baffled and surprised reading the papers. Pretty funny bottom three panels on the page now when he says the what now? After Jaron kind of explains it and he tries to flip through the papers, you know, he's really not up on what's going on with his company. So Jaron kind of lays it to him and tells him, you know, listen, this is what we need to do to avoid this hostile takeover and... Danny's thinking, of course, yeah, and it's really by Hydra, so he kind of knows what's going on. And and as they're talking things over, uh, Danny hits the floor and grabs his arm. He's got something terribly wrong with his hand. And when we go to the next page, we see that Orson, who's running from these pseudo-cops, is using the chi to fire up his hand. And that's the hand that's bugging Danny. 
So there's definitely a connection, you know, when Orson uses the power, it affects Danny. So they're certainly connected by the chi. So these fake cops are kind of searching for Orson around the street, and uh, one of them is going to kill an old lady, and he in fact does snap her neck, and he yells, you know, her blood stains your hands, Randall. And Orson kind of gets this faraway look in his eye, and it says you can't outrun the, bl- the blood. And when you, when you turn the page, it cuts to World War I uh, in France. And again, the art style is totally different, uh, different artist, I believe. And it's Orson in World War I. Um, and he's got to do all of these, you know, he's leading men in World War One, and he's stepping over bones and bodies and there's flamethrowers and, you know, it's a terrible war scene. Uh, a whole bunch of bodies get flamed up and, and he jumps in to attack. And then it cuts back to modern day and you get a great page where they're slowly panning back from Orson's face and he has torched the entire city block. Um, so the flashback that he had kind of triggered, you know, the outburst in his power. Um, and there's a whole bunch of flipped over cars and burnt buildings and people laying everywhere. So Orson's had some kind of like massive flashback. couple things here. First of all, as, as much as I really, really like this book, every time I read Haya, whenever they're yelling like this, you know, blood curdling Haya, I, I can't help but laugh whenever I read it. And, and I'm, <laughs> it's just, it's just silly. Do you know what I mean? Haya, I mean like, you know, you do that when you're a kid or whatever. Second thing is, I, I got a very Frank Miller uh, vibe from the page where you're kind of zooming out from a close-up of his face, just because there's like sh- complete devastation. This looks like you know something out of a Bruce Willis movie or something like that. When uh, probably like Lethal Weapon or you know Die Hard, when <laughs> everything's just demolished, and, you know the hero, the, the the aging hero is just like I just completely owned everybody right here. But it's a cool shot. I, I really liked it. With all the, uh, the kind of switching back and forth and the time frame, I get a the, the other thing I get out of this book, and even though it's not the same character, but it's kind of a, almost like a Highlander vibe out of it. You know, as we're going through the ages and we flip back and forth between different time periods, and you know, obviously with Highlander, it's it's you know one character that's living out this you know this, this one life. But it's interesting that we get you know while it's a, it's a different you know physical person, you know what they represent is the same in, in the Iron Fist, but that they're going through time. And there is somewhat of a of a immortality um, to the character. You know, Orson Randall, obviously, you know, back in World War One, he looks just as young as he is in 2006. Um, and they kind of, to me, they kind of gloss over that a little bit in the book. But I, I just thought that was interesting too, how that you know, I kind of get that vibe, and, and it kind of you use the similar transition effects where you know what's going on presently, you know, obviously throws a memory back to what was going on before, and you and you see it. Just to talk about what Adam said about the high yas, it's it's definitely silly, and it's definitely a callback to the '70s kung fu movies. Because even on this next page now, when this other fake cop goes for the high ya, the next panel, you know, he blocks it, and what's the little bam pow word next to the block? Block. You know, like it's it's kind of a very like calling your shot thing that they do in in kung fu movies. And I have a few other spots in the book that we'll get to where they're really calling out to the 70s kung fu movies, which I really appreciate. It is definitely silly, but, you know, those movies and and kind of like the heritage of martial arts in media, you know, it is silly. You can tell Fraction and Brubaker are are huge uh, kung fu fans. I mean, we keep 
we see callbacks here to 70s kung fu. We see callbacks to, you know, the more quote-unquote uh, high-concept kung fu of, like, Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon. Uh, we see, you know, historical context kung fu, like in Once Upon a Time in China. And it's like they're touching on all their favorite movies as they tell the story of Iron Fist. And I find that really cool. And uh, Orson Randall, to me, just seems like such a cool, like, pulp hero. You know what I mean? Almost like Doc Savage, you know, shadow type thing uh in that in that same time kind of time frame so yeah i could definitely see them continuing the orson randall one shots like maybe twice a year or so and and, you know having a collection of these orson randall stories from the ages you know it's just it's a no-brainer it's like indiana jones or you know uh any adventure character i think they would be great uh, so Danny is on the floor with Jaron. Jaron's trying to help him out. He's obviously had some intense pain from the from the power that Orson just let out. And Danny is saying, uh, "I know what's happening, but it doesn't make sense. Someone else is using the Iron Fist uh, as he blacks out." And that's the end of issue two. I love how he's got the drool. I mean, so he's like not just physically in pain and out of it, but he's almost—it's almost like he's. He's inside his own body and has no control over it to the point where he, you know, again, he's drooling. Um, so that was inter- you know, interesting. It's like he's a prisoner in his own body. Definitely. So the cover of issue three is probably my favorite cover uh, of the series. You know, it's Orson Randall, obviously, because of the guns. And, and you could tell, like, by the sweater. And it's more of a military outfit than the, than the Iron Fist outfit. Um, and the background, of course, is like a war scene with some barbed wire and, and broken skulls. I had a member of the forums, Juan Castro, actually recreated this page for me. And he did an awesome, awesome job. I'll have to see if I have the scan to, to put it up with the episode. And he did some watercolors for that background with all the skulls and everything. Nice. Um, it came out re- Yeah, it came out really nice. I looked into Aja's art, and he actually, David Aja actually answered me back in an email that I had to translate. But because uh, he's from Spain, I think. But <laughs> but um, he doesn't sell any of his original art, really? or he didn't. At, he didn't at that time. Um, you know, I'm sure there are inkers and stuff that have some of the pages, but he doesn't sell any of the ones that he owns. So we get another flashback for the beginning of issue three. We're at the Taku Forts High River in China, uh, and we have yet another Iron Fist, Bei Bang Wen, in 1860. And there is an approaching British horde, and he is controlling an entire army for the Chinese, uh, and he is hurling gigantic flames at the British army, um, again, showing power of the Iron Fist that, Aunt, that Danny has never used before. Um, he also talks pretty much about how he's not afraid to die at the end of the flashback. And again, this kind of opened some questions because... It's the immortal Iron Fist, but now we're learning that an Iron Fist is talking about dying. Um, and obviously, if there's been more than one Iron Fist through the ages, they die at some point. Uh, just to, something I wanted to note, because we do get into that as the arcs move on. Real quick. One, it's interesting that this particular Iron Fist, Bei Bang Wen, he has a very demonic look to him, you know, which we haven't really seen with either Danny or Orson or any of the other ones. I mean, his... He's got the glowing eyes. He's got this very contorted face. He's got fire coming out of his mouth. I mean, this is a very, you know, d- different look to any Iron Fist than we've seen either so far or probably since 
um, this one. So I thought that was that was kind of interesting that you know they're they're really taking care to show that each each one is truly different and it isn't just you know um, each person doesn't have the same exact qualities and the same style and everything else that each one of the 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 torchbearers of of the Iron Fist are very very different characters and have um, you know different qualities about them. Um, the, and the second thing is. We see on 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 the next page, um, which you know says the last Iron, Iron Fist story, part three, where where Danny's jumping off the the ledge there, and, and we get that moment. You know, obviously his his costume was pretty ripped up previously, um, so we get the new costume. And one of the things I I noticed um, previously is that whenever we've seen the Iron Fist costume in the past, to me, it almost is like there's more emphasis emphasis on Iron Fist in his costume. It's very flamboyant. Very high collar, you know, uh, you know, open chest, very 70s, you know, down to the navel with the, you know, with the the, the dragon symbol on there and the, the the headband piece and you know the usually the swinging swirling fist and all that kind of stuff, and it always it seemed very flamboyant. And one of the things that either either Blue Baker and Fraction or Aja or just the collaboration of all three, the costume is very subdued, and we see, you know, Danny. Um, out of costume a lot, a lot more than I think I've seen in the past. And then we see in this, you know, it's almost like, okay, now we've fully transferred over to this is Blue Baker and Fraction and Aja's Iron Fist. Where we, you know, we're going to redesign the costume. It's not going to be this crazy, you know, high collar, um, you know, flamboyant type outfit. It's going to be a lot more um, form fitting, tighter, you know, kind of this unitard, you know, with just the, the sashes around the waist and then around the, the headpiece. So I thought. I thought that was just kind of an interesting switch for the character that we'll see continue on. Yeah, it's definitely part of making him a more serious and believable character. The old costume was ridiculous, and I don't even necessarily love this one, but the way it's drawn, it kind of, you know, if you actually saw a person walking around wearing that, it would be strange, but I guess that goes for most superhero costumes. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Danny's going to go look for this other person who is using the uh, power, and he can kind of feel it. So he's feeling his way around the city. Pretty nice page of just showing off what Danny can do, jumping from rooftop to rooftop and and uh, flipping around. Uh, and then we go to the Wago Industries Tower, where Davos has arrived with two of his Asian ladies. Mr. Zhao who is the man that is originally trying to buy the trains from the Rand Corporation, is explaining that things didn't go well. Um, Orson got away. And he says, um, we failed, you know, all of us. And he opens the door and he says, all of Hydra. And there's that army of Hydra agents again with the very cool Hydra logo. Uh, I like this variant. I think it's changed slightly from the Hydra logos in the past, but a very ominous looking Hydra logo. What's kind of like, you know, aside from world domination and whatnot, and you're going to have to help me because my lack of Marvel info is disturbing, but what's their MO as opposed to AIM if there's any difference in between? I mean, is Hydra, because I know that was kind of a big thing that Elektra was kind of in charge of Hydra, but she was really a sprawl. So I guess is Hydra exclusively Asian and is kind of AIM the American-European response to Hydra? that are equally bad, but they're more science-oriented? Because I need some help on this. No, because Baron Von Strucker was in charge of Hydra for a long time. So if, if, 
if I'm not mistaken, Hydra, their goal is truly to take over and rule the world. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. I think AIM is more just like a criminal organization that is geared around technology, you know, and furthering their agenda through technology with an, with an emphasis on, on, you know, uh, advanced weapons um, and advanced technology, whereas Hydra is just strictly all about, you know, the, the, you know, the whole, you know, kill one head, another one grows in its place kind of thing, and it's this, it's this vast criminal empire and criminal organization that, you know, that, that its goal is to rule the world. Yeah, I'd say I'd say AIM is more terrorists, and Hydra is more of like covert, trying to have their hands, their many limbs in everything. Um, and like Jim was saying before about the Secret Warriors, I'm gonna spoil it a little bit. There's a big revelation that Hydra was behind a major organization in the Marvel universe. So they're definitely kind of like the covert, take over the world without anyone knowing it. Um, and they do have these commandos to do their dirty work. AIM is more like terrorists. We're going to blow up this building. Um, and the hand, the hand ninjas are the Asian contingency. Maybe that's what you were thinking of. Hydra is Cobra in DC. They're a fanatical take over the world um, group who are fanatically, you know, um, drawn to one another and will die for their, their cause no matter what, okay? AIM <clears throat> is more like Star Labs for uh, villains. They're more science-oriented. They want the giant, you know, they want to make the giant uh, weapon like MODOK or, you know, giant death beams or whatever. And they also sell their weaponry to other villains and, and whatnot. So does that help at all as far as the context? Yeah, that's good to go. Okay, so Danny shows up at the, at the scene of Orson Randall's explosion, um, and he sees all of the CSI-type people looking over the wreckage. You see the chalk outline? Yeah, the head like, got pulled off. Yeah, the head, <laughs> the head is a separate chalk line about three feet away. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it was a nice touch. So Danny's saying whoever whoever did this, I'm going to find them, and uh, I'm going to stop them with my bare hands. Then the next page cuts to Orson. He's kind of got like hobo clothes on, and, and he's walking around the city. He asks a guy what size he is uh, because he's going to be taking his suit. Yeah, so Orson's a little bit of a rougher character, which I thought was cool. Then they flash back to France, 1926, and we get a little scene with Orson, who's this hero of World War One or a survivor of World War One at least, and there's a reporter who wants to write his story. He says that people want to know about what happened in World War One, about the veterans and stuff, and Orson gets pretty mad at him, kind of throws him out that, you know, he's a leech and, uh, you know, he's trying to make his living off this terrible war, so Orson kind of throws him out. S.H.I.E.L.D. has started a search for, for Danny, and the helicopters are flying around, and he's kind of flipping around on rooftops, um, still trying to find Orson. And he realizes that he's going to have to go about this as Danny, not as Iron Fist. Especially with S.H.I.E.L.D. and Stark looking for him, he's not going to be able to be parading around as Iron Fist. He's going to have to do this as Danny Rand. So he changes clothes, he's in his suit, uh, and then we switch back, and Hydra has a bunch of lines tied to this guy's neck, and they're about to pull and pop his head off. It turns out this is one of the fake cops that botched the Orson Randall deal. Davos is asking the guy if he's willing to die for him. He's saying, yes, master. Uh, we have Davos with these two Asian women again behind him, and, and th this is the recurring theme of Davos is, are you willing to die for me? 
you know, everybody looks ready to die here. He, he keeps bringing it up, and, and we'll find out later that that's kind of an important theme for Davos. So they choke this guy to death, basically, for failing. Uh, in the meantime, the ladies do turn back into cranes to kind of get out of the way. Really cool panel layout on that page, in particular, where the Davos image, you know, kind of spreads itself across the panels, even though they're divided. So you get, you know, the, the, the top set of panels... Um, you know, the, the first two are Davos, and then they, they kind of, you know, moving downward, you know, you see the rest of them. Um, and then, you you, you know, um, everything keeps in, in almost symmetrical. Where on the left side, the late, you know, the Asian lady that's on the side of them, you see on the panel below, you know, her she's she turned into the crane, her clothes are falling. And then the, the last panel, she's the crane on the, basically roosting on the wire that they're using to, to, to pop this guy's head off. Um, and the same thing goes for the right-hand side. So I thought that was just interesting the way he chose to, to lay this panel out um, across the grids. Yeah, definitely cool. It's kind of like Davos is standing behind the whole thing, mm-hmm. and then some of the images are like in front of him. Right, right, right. So Davos says, Now my soldiers, men of the mighty Hydra, do not fail me as he failed me. The power of Shaolau the Undying is hiding in New York City, and when the time is right, I shall destroy them. So he's kind of taken over this whole Hydra set, and he's looking for people to die for him, obviously, because he keeps saying it. Um, so now Danny gets to his office, and Orson has kind of beat him there. Danny knows it's him, the one using the Iron Fist right away. He, he can sense it, and Danny lays out a shot. Orson drops his drink, which I'm sure ticked him off pretty well. And they have kind of like a little cool showdown for two pages where uh, Orson gets in a nice headbutt. Danny's hitting some different pressure points, uh, chokes him out. Then they both kind of iron fist up. You know, they both start flaming. It's just a really cool fight scene. I mean, I really like – I almost feel that some of the effects uh, in the page previous, they're almost like um, cinematic, like xenoscope effects that there's this kind of like crazy, ridiculous background going on. Um, that you would see in, in like title sequences to a kung fu movie, and I just really wanted to shout out that art real quick because it's really awesome to look at. To look at, and it, it kind of has some Asian overtones to it too. Very, very Storenko as well. Storenko did a lot of stuff like that with the whole psychedelic, um, you know, swirly backgrounds and things like that as well. Yeah, it definitely uh, adds some flavor to the pages. Um, so Orson kind of stops Danny flat. And says, uh, you don't just look like your father. You're as pig-headed as he was, too. And Danny's kind of surprised that, you know, that he knew his father. And he, and he asks him, he says, you knew my father? And he says, knew him. I taught him to throw his first kick. Hell, I practically taught him everything he knew. And that's the, we get a one-panel shot of the mask of the Iron Fist. And that's the end of issue three. So three issues in, we have these converging characters that finally kind of meet up. And uh, you get the big reveal for the series so far that, you know, Orson Randall has something to do with Danny and his family and, and trained his father. Um, so, again, the question right away is, well, why didn't Danny's father become an Iron Fist? So he's kind of answering questions and adding a few into the mix, which is pretty cool. I think that's where Brubaker excels, you know, as a writer. And, I'm, you know, obviously Fraction had something to do with this as well, but... I think we see more of that as a Blue Baker style element um, to where when we get to, and really the, you know, the, a good comic writer, I think that's what you do. This is, you know, the perfect way to keep hooking the reader into coming back to the book month after month, but not making it, 
you know, and I, I don't mean this as a dig, but almost like what Peter David's doing in X Factor now, where it's just this over over the top, you know, crazy ending, you know, type type of situation. It's, it's subtle, but enough to really just suck you in and want you to read more. So the beginning of issue four uh, is another flashback, but they kind of throw a curve at you. It's not an Orson Randall flashback. It's a Phineas Randall flashback. He crashes his crazy transglobal airship into Kun Loon, um, which is extremely lucky because it's only one day in 10 years where the mystical city is on the Earth plane. So it was extremely lucky that the day that his airship should crash, it would crash onto Kun Loon. And Phineas Randall is kind of a nut, and he comes flying out of the crashed ship uh, with a gun in his hand saying, my wife is eight months pregnant, needs medical attention, and she'll get it, or all of you will need medical attention. And that's how the Randall family came to Kun Loon, is the last box on the page. Well, I guess I guess Phineas Randall could either have crashed on Kun Loon or that island on Lost. So, um, yeah. good for us that he made it to Kun Loon. And I, I think it's interesting on that, you know, on the second page there, where... Um, you know, Randall, it's obviously the, the Randall family logo. We see the A, the L, and the L. You know, I don't know if that's just part of the logo or if those are the letters falling off, but what's left is the, is the name Rand, um, you know, being prominent. So I think we'll, that'll, you know, come out to play a little later. It looks, yeah, definitely. This guy looks like a little, maybe a little steampunk influence. He's kind of like this adventurer explorer, and I got kind of a steampunk feel from, uh, you know, the one panel that the dude's in. I'd also say that. Kun Loon really reminds me of Nanda Parbat in the DC universe. You know, this kind of like uh, make-believe Shangri-La, but, you know, of course the politics of Kun Loon are, as, as we'll get, you know, get into when we hit the Seven Cities of Heaven, is right. extremely more in-depth than Nanda Parbat at this point could ever hope to be. So Randall and Danny Rand are kind of gearing up, getting ready to go on a little journey that I guess um, you're, you know, you'll learn about that a, a little bit later on. And Danny is surprised that Orson is carrying guns. And he says, so, you know, you learned your Kung Fu from Lei Kung and Smith and & Wesson? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was, that was a pretty good line. And, and, and this was great, I thought, where Orson says, listen, you don't know a thing about your own history. Wu Ao Shi, the pirate queen of Ping Hai Bay, could extend the Shao Lao Chi into the arrows fired from her bow. Uh, and it is written that her enemies fell as if lightning from God had destroyed them. Now shut up and try to keep up. So so basically, their answer for why doesn't Danny do all of these other powers that we've seen in the flashbacks is because he just doesn't know how yet. Um, and Orson Randall can definitely school him in all of these techniques. Yeah, I love the, again, it's, you know, the dialogue choice and, and the story choice is that um, Orson Randall is just kind of a, almost like the anti-hero, you know, where he's, he's not, I don't know how to explain it. I'm, I'm having trouble organizing my thoughts here, but he's not, he's not the typical good guy. You would think that all of these iron fists would be noble and have to have certain qualities or, or whatever. Um, and it's interesting that he's, you know, obviously been out of the game for quite some time, but he's not a nice guy. You know, he's, you know, he's kind of his, his own man, I, sh- I guess I should say. So they're going to take a little journey through the subway station uh, in the underworld, and Orson reveals that they're headed for the for his father's pneumatic subway station. So again, a little more steampunk influence. Um, they're headed for a Phineas Randall invention. 
Um, we switch back to Wago American headquarters, and we get a, our first look at, at, at Davos without his shirt on, and he has a similar mark to the Iron Fist, but it's clearly not an Iron Fist. It, it doesn't have the wings of the dragon. It's just kind of like a serpent. And Davos is going to go through his training, and they, they take a nice page of him basically uh, demolishing a number of Hydra agents in a sparring room. Um, pretty violent arms being broken, uh, faces smashed, and he's driving something through that guy's back there all the way throughout the front end. So he's he's killing dudes. We switch back to Danny and Orson. Danny says, hey, I think I learned that uh, that hypnotic fist technique, and he's kind of playing around with his hand. Uh, so again, we get the little quick glimpse that Orson's going to be teaching Danny how to use these techniques for the future. Orson asks Danny, where do you think your family got your money from? And Danny says, I told you, you know, the stock market. Why? Is that a trick question? Uh, they always are, boy. They always are. So you know that Orson has knowledge over uh, Danny at this point. He he knows things about Danny's past, and he's kind of giving us little clues, but they're not revealing that. It's a great way to, again, nod back to the fact that it, it's always been set up that this is what Danny has said, how his family came into money, and he's reiterating it. And now, you know, moving forward, we're going to get to know that's, that's what you think is the real story. We're going to tell you what the real story is. Um, so again, Blue Baker and Fraction, you know, nodding back to the past and not changing anything. Um, but, you know, it's always been told, I guess, from Danny's perspective. And now it's going to be told from the outsider's perspective that knows the real story. Then we get the flashback of Orson Randall's exchange with Shalau the Dragon, how he became the Iron Fist. And he says, you know, as soon as the power flowed into him, he knew that it, this wasn't just a title, being the Iron Fist. Um, and he was the outworlder, so he got looked at a little differently by the people that uh, were born in, in Kunlun. Um, so this is like the first outlander to take that title. And I think that's a reoccurring theme in a lot of martial arts stuff, too, the you know, the outsider that needs to be accepted. They, they did that in um, uh, the Kung Fu series with David Carradine on TV. Um, originally, you know, he's the American kid who gets taken into the school and he's sort of always the outcast in class, and they pick on him. It's been done a number of even in Kung Fu Panda, right? I mean, they don't want to they don't want to accept Kung Fu Panda in the beginning. He doesn't belong there, so it's kind of a reoccurring theme in a lot of the Kung Fu movies. Um, and then we get a we get a glimpse in in the rest of the flashback that uh, for some reason uh, Randall left Kunlun. He you know, he, he left, he quit. He tried to quit being the Iron Fist. We don't know why yet, but he then once returned, and he was more of an outworlder than ever. So we're going to get filled in on that stuff uh, as we go. So back to modern time, uh, Danny and Orson have arrived at their destination. There's a giant Iron Fist icon on the wall, which is obviously hiding something. Orson talks to Danny about how he can project his power to break open the wall. When they break down the wall, they find the five-point station, the crown jewel of Phineas Randall's empire of hypothetical science. So he's got all these crazy terms and, and pseudosciences going on, um, but they found their destination. We go back to Davos, who is still sparring away and uh, crushing Hydra agents. Jim, I wanted to ask you if you saw something familiar on this page. Hydra agents? <laughs> well... I was reaching a little bit further. Uh, the second panel from the top, do you recognize that weapon on the Hydra agent's hand? Ah, yeah, it's uh, 
It's like Wolverine claws. <laughs> Close. It's the claw used by the Enter the Dragon villain. Oh, Kang, yeah. Right. He kicks the uh he kicks in the showcase and puts on the hand to fight Bruce Lee at the end in the mirrored hall. I totally yeah, forgot that until you mentioned it, but yeah, that's it. That is it. Yeah, there was a, um Adam, in case you're not a fan of Enter the Dragon, there's a oh, one handed no. I, I, I know what I know what you're saying, man. That's like oh, one of awesome. the best death scenes ever too. Yeah, and an awesome callback, I thought. You know, we're they do some subtle ones here and there, and that's like probably super subtle. But I just watched the movie like really recently, and that's definitely the exact same hand that the guy puts on. Nice. Um, so then we find out that Davos is going to go up against that Mecha Gorgon. Then we get another flashback, and we get Davos's experience with Shalau, and and Davos actually lost his one-on-one fight with uh wendell rand who is danny's father so wendell was the one that was supposed to see uh shallow the undying we still don't know why he didn't yet but in anger davos goes to see the dragon and and he gets put down actually but i guess they don't show that completely at this point so i probably just spoiled it but then we go to uh davos saying that he was cast out from kunlun and we get a quick catch up here on the history of Davos and Iron Fist. Davos came back to defeat Danny in in revenge for what his father had done uh, to Davos and he tries to steal Danny's power and this is all um, this all actually happened. Uh, it's in the essential Iron Fist. It happened in Marvel Team Up 63 and 64. Danny Rand teams up with Spider-Man and they are attacked by Davos and this is where Davos tries to steal Danny's power, and he actually does steal it for a short period of time, and uh, of course he's defeated with Spider-Man's help, and he kind of like teleports away, and you never see Davos again. So this is like the first reappearance of Davos, and he kind of alludes to that, you know, that he's returned to Rome now. And I love how they, again, we get the style change. You know, this is very, because this happened in, I guess at this point, probably late 70s-ish, you know, maybe early '80s, we get that that style where it's back to the that portrayal of of Iron Fist costume and, and Davos and the whole you know the whole nine yards. So back to Davos, and he's about to fight the Mecha Gorgon, and he steals the life force or the chi from these Asian women that he has hanging around, the ones that can turn into cranes, uh, and he seems to use their power to defeat the Mecha Gorgon and all of the. Hydra agents uh, that he was about to spar with. So I guess they have a lot of expendable uh, Hydra dudes that they can just use in training and, and kill. And he says, Mother, I'm ready at last. So he's calling out to somebody, probably the female figure that we saw earlier in the book, um, that he's ready for whatever task she needs him to do. We cut quick to Zhao on the phone with Jaren, and apparently Zhao has Jaren's mother captured. Um... And they sent Jaren her finger. So they mean business. And I, I wonder if this is why Jaren was on board from the beginning. Like if he knew how long ago he knew that they had his mother. Or if this was just a recent occurrence uh, to try to get Jaren on their side to maybe backdoor this deal without having to like go to war with Danny. Yeah, he kind of recaps this later on when uh, the cavalry so, uh, arrives. I don't, I don't want to spoil anything before we get it there. But kind of, uh, Jaren goes into detail about what happened as far as uh, their, them capturing his mother and uh, sending his finger, or sending him her finger, 
and whatnot to get him to go along with this deal to, for the uh, maglev rail. So then we cut back to Danny and Orson, and they are in the hypothetical uh, railroad station, and Hydra, of course, shows up. Orson kind of senses them in a hurry, and so Danny says, so I guess it's time to see your mighty gun fu, which again is clearly, you know, gun fu is the term used for John Woo's uh, martial arts films when he started throwing in all of that slow motion gunfighting along with the martial arts uh, kung fu stuff. So it's definitely a little nod to to John Woo using the term gun fu. And Orson says, I told you, Wu Aoshi, the pirate queen of Pingai Bay, lightning from God. So he can extend the chi through his guns like she did it with arrows. And the next splash page is probably my favorite page in the book. You get both of them saying, I am the immortal Iron Fist. And, and Danny's kind of on the ground doing the punching and the kicking. And Orson is in the air doing one of those John Woo flips while he's firing two guns, you know, one in each hand. Uh, great page. I love it. So then we get Davos calling out to Mother again in his uh, carnage of training. Um, your adopted son calls to you, he says, and he gets spoken back to. Speak, child. And uh, Davos says that he's going to need a lot more of those daughters if he's going to get this job done. Um, so so then we on the next page, uh, we learn that it's the Crane Mother, who is a new character, uh, looks old as dirt. A very mystic-looking figure, uh, almost a skeleton, very old. Looks like something um, you might see in a Hellboy comic. A really, really kind of a crazy design, too. Pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. So she says that Davos has done an excellent job, uh, and you are living weapon and defender of the ancient city of Kunzi. So right there, there's another reveal, you know. She is the leader of Kun Zi, which is obviously similar to Kunlun, but different, which there's never been another mystic city before. And our daughters are for you, are, are for you to use as you see fit. And Davos says then he's going to kill Orson Randall for her. In exchange, he's going to get to kill Danny Rand. Uh, and he will avenge the atrocities committed by Kunlun, which we haven't exactly learned in full yet, but they're getting to that. So that's the cliffhanger for issue four. Uh, I'm just going to take a break. Two seconds, all right, guys? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so issue five, we go to 1933. Uh, we find out that we are in a sacred ground, a church, and, and this is where we find out that the, the seven capital cities of heaven convene and celebrate their most holy duty. So now we just learned that there was a second uh, capital city at the end of last issue, and now we find out that there's actually seven. And this seems to be a committee of all the leaders of the seven cities. And Crane Mother has a problem with something that has gone on. Uh, and we meet the UT, who is the august personage in Jade. He is a character that's been around whenever they flash back in the old Iron Fist series uh, to Danny in Kunlun in the past. They always show the UT um, as the leader, he's kind of got like a Cobra Commander hood that he wears, uh, only it's green. We don't get a good look at him here yet. He's always kind of had an undertone of evil. He's never been flat out evil in the past, but he's always the bearer of bad news or, sure, I can let you go to the Earth Realm, but you must defeat this robotic army of snakes. You know, like he's always the guy that... <laughs> You, you know, right, he, he, it was a plot device, almost, that he was just the bearer of bad news. Um, but he's never been actually evil. 
but he's always had that sort of undertone. It's interesting um, that there's that name because in 52 from DC, there was uh, August General and Iron from the Great Ten. So there's kind of like that, you know, personification there with the same type of, well, personality. I mean, that whole kind of like good soldier slash political influence on, on both of these guys. Right. So the, the council here is talking about uh, the Crane Mother's problem. And, and it appears that they're talking about a weapon who refuses to be in the contest and honor his city. Uh, so the Crane Mother's saying it's nonsense and it's centuries of tradition. The one event that brings the seven cities together in this time, in this place, and uh, the UT has allowed this weapon to leave. So obviously they're talking about um, Orson who has decided that he did, didn't want to fight in the tournament uh, when he was the Iron Fist of Kunlun. And the council agrees that he should be punished. And we get a good look at the Crane Mother here, and she's definitely like a Grim Reaper, uh, skeleton woman type character. Hey, you know what? She looks like Lady Deathstrike from uh, Wolverine fame. Yeah, her fingers do. Oh, yeah. Lady Deathstrike seems to be a few hundred years younger. <laughs> So then we cut back to Orson and Danny, and they're still fighting in the uh, in the railroad. You get a bunch of nice symmetrical panels that each show a move. And one of the parts I loved, another you know kind of like call out to the '70s kung fu, is naming all the different moves. Uh, so you get the Golden Star Gouge and the Strike of the Silkworm Tooth, the Burning Dove Chop. So you get a nice eight panels of these different moves as Danny and Orson kind of kick butt on the uh, Hydra. Punctuated by a Brooklyn headbutt. That's the last one of Danny's moves. And uh, Orson is firing and remembering all the people who died rather than uh, naming his shots. You know, right, Tony, right. For Jean-Claude, for Marie, for Marlo's cigarette dog. So it kind of shows you what, the, what each Iron Fist is thinking of as they're fighting. Definitely. Nice double page there. Um, so then we get a really cool scene in, in the fight in the train, and um, we learn what Orson brought Danny to this train for is this giant glowing book, and it has some Asian writing on the cover. We don't know exactly what it is yet. They jump off the train be- before it crashes, uh, so the train is ruined. Orson mentions that there goes his father's legacy. There's a big explosion that pops up a manhole cover, and Orson and Danny kind of rise up out of the manhole with the book. So he says, here, I got something for you. It's the Book of the Iron Fist, this book. And uh, it glows because it's actually written on the scales of Shao Lao himself. Nice. Uh, yeah, which is a really cool touch. And it glows when they touch it because they are all connected to Shao Lao through the chi and the power of the Iron Fist. Um, so when they read it and open it, the whole thing glows. Orson explains that it has the secrets of our Kung Fu from the very first Iron Fist to the one who preceded Orson. And he says, read up, boy, you'll need it for what's coming next. And, and Danny says, next. And he doesn't really get an explanation yet. He says, they'll come after you just as they came after me. So then we get another flashback to uh, a past Iron Fist reading the book. Um, we find out that it's Orson. And he he went back to Kunlun to for whatever reason we're not, we're not exactly sure, and 
the weapons attack him in retribution for him leaving the tournament. This is what all of the council members were speaking about earlier. Um, and in defense, Orson lashes out and kills an immortal weapon from one of the worlds. Uh, probably the, the Kun Z, probably one of Crane Mother's weapons, which is why she's so angry. So, of course, Orson didn't mean it, but he did the only thing he could do, which is run from Kun Loon, and he took the book with him. Uh, which is what led to it being on Earth and, and him being able to find it with Danny. One of the things this reminds me of, I've recently been reading the Starman Omnibuy, and the whole you know book of the Immortal Iron Fist is kind of similar to, in, in Starman, Starman kind of has, the, the new Starman, uh, has this mentor in the shade, who's you know one of those characters that's been around forever and was really fleshed out in Robinson's Starman run. And he has this book called The Shade's Journal, and he gives it to, um, to Starman. And he will we'll kind of see the same thing we see in this book, where every so often you'll just get a random issue of, of, um, of him reading the book and you know, going on a past adventure dealing with The Shade or um, you know, his father or you know, the original Golden Age heroes and stuff like that. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, I, I kind of saw that parallel to, to the Starman run. I think it really ties in nicely with their plan. You know, that their plan was to open up the legacy and add all of these powers to Danny. And now there's this book, you know, that's just going to have all the secrets hidden in it. Um, so every time Danny kind of cracks it open and gets a look at it, you can create a new power or a new story of a past Iron Fist or, you know, pull something out of it that can be used in arcs to come. So Davos has arrived in New York with his army of crane daughters that he will kill to suck the life out of them. And the one tells him that our mother wanted me to pass a message along to you. If you fail us, we will consume your soul. So Davos has a lot on the line here because the crane mother is not going to accept him killing all of her daughters like this without being successful um, in killing Orson Randall. So they take off in some Humvee limos. He says, take us to Rand corporate headquarters and don't stop for lights. <laughs> so now we get Danny and Orson. They have the book. They're on the rooftops. He kind of explains that uh, there are seven of us, meaning the immortal weapons. Um, you'll be asked to fight them to continue the legacy of blood and death disguised as honor. So obviously Orson's kind of disenchanted with the whole uh, way that Kun Loon is, is run and what they ask the Iron Fists to do. Danny says, that's why you took this. Yes, I hoped without that book uh, that the line of Iron Fists would end with me. So he was hoping to stop the line of Iron Fists by stealing the book, uh, which of course didn't happen because Danny is the next Iron Fist. So now he gets it for him uh, so he can survive. He asks about uh, the Crane Mother and, and, and what the deal is. He says, why did you think all that's happening now? The, the Crane Mother and the city of Kunzi have been planning this for decades the Iron Fist destroyed her weapon. Uh, she only gives birth to a weapon one every 300 years. So that's why you get that line earlier that Davos is the adopted son. He's not an actual weapon of Kunzi because she only has one every 300 years. So he's kind of, you know, he hates Randall and, and the Rand family. She hates Randall. So it was kind of like a match made in heaven or hell uh, that they would work together. He, he goes on to explain all about the, you know, the bloodshed of being an Iron Fist and how it's really a curse and not, you know, an honor as they make it out to be. And he, and he points at the book and says, these are our sins. 
Yeah, in the, in that book, you know, not just their great deeds. So, and now Danny has the instruction book on how to survive it. So, kind of like a, you know, don't screw it up. I, I just gave you the the whole history. I told you what to look out for. Everything you need is in that book, and you know, hopefully, it works out better for Danny than it did Orson. Uh, we cut quick to Jaron. He's explaining to somebody how he screwed up, and they took his mother, so he gave them the trains, and uh, please help him. And on the next page, we learn that he's talking to the Heroes for Hire, you know, Luke Cage, Misty, and Colleen, which is really cool to have them involved. Jaron kind of suddenly gets a strange look on his face, and when we flip back to the heroes that are facing him, there are those unending Hydra agents all, all set to invade. So we know there's going to be another blowout any second. Can you help me out with who the two chicks are? Because yeah. they, don't really use, they don't really use the, like, I guess, superhero names. But I def- they are, I've got a good grasp on Luke Cage, though, because of New Avengers and stuff. Yeah, they are the other heroes for hire, uh, Misty Knight and Colleen Wing. And they've been in Iron Fist and Power Man stories uh, for, since the 70s. At one time, Colleen, who is the ninja white girl, uh, she seemed to be a flame of Danny. But now they've kind of moved Danny towards being the boyfriend of Misty. And they're they're the heroes for hire. They were, you know, they were vigilantes. They weren't they were kind of like the A-team. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they weren't superhero. They weren't superheroes because they had good hearts. They were superheroes because you could pay them. OK, so no like code names like this is really, you know, Power Girl or any craziness like that then, right? No, Misty okay. Knight and Colleen Wing. OK, yeah, Misty I'm, Knight I'm not has a uh, cybernetic arm, I think. Yeah, now. Now, I don't, I don't know when that came into play, but she does have a robot arm. And Colleen Wing is uh, a really well-trained martial artist. So I, I don't think they have any other superpowers other than that, but they've been around since the original uh, Heroes for Hire book, um, you know, the Power Man and Iron Fist uh, team-up book back in the 80s. Yeah, I think actually Colleen Wing was Jean Grey's roommate back when they were, like, in the old, in the, in the early, you know, in the first 66. Like when they went off to for a while, they went off to college or whatever. And if I'm 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 pretty sure that 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 while that was going on, that Colleen Wing was uh, was her roommate. In a few pages, we're gonna get to see them in action, um, and it's some really cool action stuff with the two of them. And if anybody out there likes it, I recommend Daughters of the Dragon, which is a six issue mini series that was just about Colleen Wing and and Misty Knight. You know, they traded it, and I think I got it for five bucks at, like, uh, if you go to, like, cheapasstrades.com and look it up, you'll find it at, like, half.com or, or one of those places for, like, five bucks. And it's really good, fun martial arts action. Their books aren't, are never, like, dark or, or real serious. It's mostly about fun and, and, you know, kung fu and stuff. One thing I thought was pretty cool here is that Danny explains to Orson that uh, the reason he owns all these buildings is that they connect, like, an underground railroad, so he can jump across the whole city and always get home by the rooftops of buildings that he owns so i thought that was pretty cool and they have a little elevator ride for a page which is kind of uh interesting and the cool thing about the elevator ride is danny's kind of like yawning and he's got his arm up on the wall like kind of holding himself up you know he looks like he needs a nap and he's ready to go to bed and when that elevator hits ding on the second to last panel when you get to that last panel Danny's totally surprised by what he's seen, and Orson's already reaching for the guns. So he's totally more of a, of a seasoned vet. And, of course, we see that uh, what they have learned is that the whole Rand Corporation floor is covered in cranes, women with longbows, Davos, and Hydra agents with uh, scope 
rifles. This is pretty cool because it shows that unlike, you know, Spider-Man or Daredevil in the Marvel U, where those guys, you know, they can prepare or prepare to how they're going to react, that, you know, with these guys, there's no prep time at all. It's it's straight up, you know, it, it's like you're going into an action scene or, or a montage or something like that. So I really like that aspect of things. And I don't want to say that Danny's kind of like a dummy, but, I mean, he's certainly not the most... I don't know, be aware of your surroundings, grasshopper type. <laughs> yeah. Mean, he's, he's really caught off guard a lot. So I, I kind of like that in, as opposed to the, um, you know, I know when vultures, you know, circling over my head or I know I can, you know, throw this baton and smash the kingpin's head right in and it'll work perfectly. So I, I kind of like that aspect of things. I mean, they definitely have a kind of kiddish look to it of, you know, surprise, intrigue, what have you. You know, and we saw that earlier in the book with the initial wave of Hydra agents. So, I mean, I think it. I think it plays into what he's trying to do. You know, his his whole point of the arc is that Danny's going to learn from Orson. Orson has the book. Orson knows all these tricks. The the past Iron Fists knew how to do all these things that Danny doesn't know how to do. So making him a little bit of a dummy just plays that up. Like now we're all feeling that Danny has a lot to learn. You know, so it. It all kind of ties it together. Yeah, you've always gotten the impression that, you know, Danny is the master. You know, he knows everything there is to know. He's harnessing this power. He's been taught everything. And, you know, to bring this character in that basically, you know, takes him back to, you know, to a child, you know, where he knows one-tenth of, of what there is to know um, is, is an interesting aspect. Um, you know, the, the whole, you know, master-apprentice, um, relationship that they that they build. Plus, Danny's way in over his head almost through this whole through this whole series, really. Even you know, up against a hundred Hydra agents, now up against all these Hydra agents, plus the Crane daughters, plus Davos, and later in the Tournament of Heaven too. He's like way out of his depth and way you know, over his head, and trying to learn all about the legacy of the Iron Fist that he never even knew existed before this. Yeah, definitely. So we move on to issue six. Uh, we start off with another flashback. Nepal, many years ago, turns out that Orson Randall is in a uh, bar, and he's playing a very Indiana Jones first movie uh, drinking game with an evil-looking character, uh, and one of the cups has poison in it, uh, and a young boy tells Mr. Randall which one not to drink uh, so that he can survive. Orson Randall goes out into the snow, and, and he, he calls the kid to kind of thank him. And the kid says, my name's Wendell, and I'm a great fighter, and if you do anything to me, I'll hurt you, and, and so on. So we learn that this is how Orson met Wendell, who will later be, the obviously, the father of Danny. Um, so there's still a little bit of intrigue here. There, there's something missing, because Orsel, uh, Orsel, pff, Orson, have another Bud Light line. Or <laughs> Orson <laughs> or Will Redenbacher. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Orson trained Wendell, but Wendell never became an Iron Fist. So something happened there. We're not going to learn about it now, but you know, it's a thread that they've been leaving out there since the beginning. So now we're going to get the big, uh, the big throwdown between the heroes of Hire, the two Iron Fists, and Davos, and all of the uh, Hydra agents. Again, Davos yelling, fight for me, die for me. So all of his power really is dependent on the death of 
others. It, it, it's literal and metaphorical. He needs to kill others to be stronger, and he needs them to, you know, do the dirty work and die for him in battle. I think in the wrong um, hands, John, that this battle sequence could be really bad because I'm not going to say the coloring is an exact match, but with green Hydra, Hydra agents, and then the two Iron Fists jumping around, um, the color work could get really blended. And I'm happy to say that for the last six issues, that hasn't happened. I mean, because they've only been fighting Hydra agents, you know, on the street or in the Rand Corporation rooftops and whatnot. So, I mean, to the credit of the colorists here, I mean, they remain pretty distinct along with the pencils, too. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely enjoyed the art. I love the dialogue in these uh, fight scenes, too, where especially in the beginning, Danny and Orson, and Danny's like, we're doomed. Orson's like less talking, more kicking. And then my favorite, yeah. my favorite uh, panel in the whole book is uh, with uh, Luke and Misty and Colleen. And Luke said, Luke uh, Cage says, "The old school heroes for hire are back, baby. Sweet <laughs> bleeping Christmas." <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, it's about time he said that. Yeah, and this again, like these next couple of pages, I'm not going to spend too much time on them because they kind of like they kind of let the daughters of the dragon and, and Luke Cage do their thing. And again, if, if this kind of stuff gets your pulse up, you know, definitely check out the Daughters of the Dragon uh, miniseries because it's all this kind of you know good-looking ladies and 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 large samurai swords and guns and kicking and and, and fun stuff. Um, so in this giant exchange somewhere, Jaren gets taken. Again, now this is this is a little bit of of importance. This is where Danny realizes how Davos is gaining all this power that he's sucking it out of the life of these Crane daughters, and he kind of alerts Orson to it to watch what he's doing. And uh, there's a giant half page purple explosion as Orson gathers all this power and and uh, blasts the floor and creates like this earthquake. And what happens here is. Davos is beating Orson down and Danny is watching and Danny realizes that Orson wants to die at this moment and, and right before Davos lands the killing blow on Orson uh, Danny kind of realizes it and they give you a shot of Orson's face and he's got a very slight grin on his face like finally this is going to be over for him and on the next page we get a giant boom and Davos uh, kicks the hell out of Orson and ends his life at that moment. And and Danny's trying to like kind of hang on to Orson as Orson's in his dying minutes. And he's saying, you know, take my chi, stop the steel surf, serpent, and you're going to need all my power for the tournament. And, you know, Danny, again, the, the tournament, you know, he really doesn't understand the scope of, of what's going on. And and Orson kind of, he, he, he definitely wanted to die. Um, all of the wars and the violence and, and everything has, has taken the spark out of Orson, but he also is sacrificing himself to give the power to Danny because obviously splitting the power is not going to do any good for either of them. And for Danny to continue the legacy, he's going to need full power. Right. Plus, you know, he says we're doomed, and then look at the sound effect doom, giant, you know, in huge letters. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I actually uh, I thought it said boom, but it does say doom. That's pretty cool. So now Danny is at full power, which, you know, Orson has existed all this time. So they're basically saying here that all through the 70s and 80s and every other book that Iron Fist was in, he was at half power. 
you know, because Orson was alive and and had half of the power at that time. So again, they've opened up all the possibilities, like how strong and powerful can Danny be? Again, it's kind of that tie back, like we were saying, where, like I mentioned earlier about Highlander, where you know every time one of them dies, the you know the one that kills them, you know, gains that that knowledge, the power, the ability, and everything else. So you know, it's kind of we kind of see the same thing here, where when Orson you know, basically releases his chi or his essence into Danny, you know, Danny becomes more powerful, more knowledgeable, you know, more worldly. Um, and I love that, that last line. But basically one of the last things that, that uh, Orson says to Danny, Danny asks him, like, are you my grandfather? Or, and then Orson says, Danny, don't, don't be an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the last things this guy says to him is just don't be an idiot. Because their last names were so close, there was going to be a reveal like that. But I'm kind of glad there wasn't, you know. Yeah, and and, I mean, again, with that logo that you guys noticed earlier with the Randall, but the A and the LL are falling off, so it says Rand. I mean, there's something going on, or or they're, you know, they're leaving the door open slightly, I guess, for for down the road. So there's a quick, another cutback, and it kind of fills in an important gap of uh, Orson is on the pipe already. Um, and, and Wendell, Danny's father, as a young man is trying to get him to, to bring him to, to Kunlun, you know, to let him be the next Iron Fist. And Orson pretty much tells him to sit down and shut up and, and, and you don't know that the curse that is the Iron Fist will be the death of you. And, you know, he, he says, have I ever lied to you about anything? He's like, you don't want to hear it, but I don't care. I don't want to have your death on my hands. So he kind of, they kind of have this falling out. And uh, you said yourself, I'm a great fighter, Wendell says. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know I'm meant for more than this. So Wendell doesn't really understand why Orson is turning him away from being an Iron Fist and going to Kunlun at this point. Uh, but we've been kind of filled in that Orson knows that it's just a terrible curse to be the Iron Fist. So he obviously cares for Wendell and doesn't want him to get mixed up in it. Uh, then we switch back to Danny and Davos, who are going to have their throwdown. There's a giant, like, Matrix-like clash between the two of them as they're at full strength. And, and Davos basically calls Danny a cheater when he realizes the power that Danny has just gained from Orson's death, which was kind of a funny line, I thought, from Davos. Just kind of shows like he's just like a spoiled brat baby. Like, you know, if, if Danny can beat him, he must be cheating. He's got, like, all of the power of the Iron Fist, but none of the honor. Yeah, absolutely. And then Davos kind of like teleports away and, and, and leaves the fight. You know, I'm going to I'm going to live to fight another day in the tournament in the seven cities of heaven. So then there's kind of like a little uh, cleanup moment. We have the heroes for hire and, and talking to Danny and, and Danny's pretty upset and he, and he wants to know where Jaren is. And he's got a living Hydra agent and he says, uh, you know, where's where'd you people send him? And he says, hail Hydra, with a question mark. <laughs> Danny says, wrong answer, and is about to stab him. Uh, and you turn the page, and Lei Kung, the Thunderer, who I think this... Did we get a look at him early on, like in the background? This is the trainer in Kunlun. This is the guy that... This is Mr. Miyagi of Kunlun. Uh, UT runs things, but Lei Kung, the Thunderer, 
is the guy training all of the weapons. If um, if there was any scene in the book that screamed Mortal Kombat, it was this one because I just was like, you know, this giant green ball appears and then like the two masters show up. I'm like, oh, this is Raiden and Sub Zero or something, some craziness. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is this is 1991 all over again. Definitely. And there's that um, there's the UT's Cobra Commander mask that I was talking about. Yeah. So they show up and they say, listen, Danny, it's time to go. It's the the tournament of the heavenly cities is at hand and your presence is demanded. This dude kind of remind me of uh, Baron Zemo, just with um you know just the old school Marvel uh, towel over his head, kind of. Yeah, and it is old school. I mean, this is exactly how he looked in you know the late seventies. If you pick up the Iron Fist uh, essential, you know this is exactly how he looks. So he's like, of course, Danny doesn't want to go. Orson just got killed. He's got to find Jaren. And they're basically like, they're, this is not a conversation. You're the Iron Fist. This is the Seven Cities and, you know, tournament, and you're coming. Luke Cage is kind of like, you need, you know, you need me riding shotgun. And Danny says, no, you know, this is kind of something that I have to take care of myself. And he says, this is the fight I was born for. And he kind of, that, that glowing green ball kind of shrinks up and disappears. And you get one last black panel for the end, and that's the end of the arc. And Danny is off to fight in the seven capital cities of heaven tournament. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on before we kind of sum things up is issue seven is a one shot. It's the story of uh, Wu Ao Shi, which is the first and last female Iron Fist. And they showed her quickly. She's the pirate queen of Pingai Bay. They've talked about her a little bit. Uh, they did have some flashbacks of her. And I just thought it was an interesting one shot. Um, it really shows what the opening up of this legacy can bring in terms of storytelling. I won't get into it too much because we're running kind of long tonight. But she basically is another outcast. She's a street rat sort of character. Um, she's caught stealing and they're going to torture her. Uh, Lei Kung the Thunderer kind of saves her from what happened and takes her under his wing and trains her. And, you know, she's not accepted in the school. She's a woman. She's... Uh, you know, that's very different. She ends up being the best and beating the dragon. She falls in love with a fisherman, and the two of them can just not exist together. An, an immortal weapon cannot be the wife of a fisherman. It's just not going to work. So he leaves Kun Lun and goes to Earth uh, to just be a fisherman. And she ends up quitting as the Iron Fist and to, to, to go to Earth and try to find him. It accentuates Orson Randall's point of the Iron Fist being a curse. So, you know, it, it took her away from her love, basically, and she spends the back end of the issue trying to find him, uh, which eventually they are reunited. And there's a really cool last page where they show her with her Iron Fist emblem and their little kids running around in like a family portrait with dad holding the fishing pole. Um, and then the second to last panel is Lei Kung kind of dictating the story and there's a scribe writing it in the book of the iron fist and the last panel shows the closed book of the iron fist you know which kind of gives you a nice little insight as to what's in that book that danny just inherited so i thought it was a cool little one shot that kind of tied some of the flashbacks in and and gave you a nice little story and i think they can continue this for a long time in terms of like fill-in issues yeah it's like a, it's a book within a book right exactly it's a great way, too, that, you know, again, we see a lot of times when, you know, I don't know if this was the case or not, but when books are running late because artists are 
behind schedule or you know, maybe the writers behind schedule or whatever, that this is the kind of thing they could just, you know, have, you know, a script written in their back pocket or have a, a, a full-blown issue produced and done to put in your back pocket to where if they get to the end of an arc or between arcs or if an arc is running, you know, behind or whatever, to keep the book coming out monthly, they could stick one of these in there and it would totally fit. You know, when you get into the whole, you know, putting the, the book of the Iron Fist in there, it just it just fits and flows very well. Um, the other thing that I thought was cool that we noticed with, with this book is we get to where we see the... Um, Basically, the, the Iron Fist tattoo, the, the dragon, isn't necessarily always emblazoned across the chest. You know, we see it on, on, um, Roshi that she has it on her, you know, basically on, on her leg. And we'll see, you know, as we get further into the book that these, you know, Iron Fists have the, the, the mark in, in other places, which I thought was kind of interesting too. Yeah, definitely. And again, it shows a little bit about what Jim was speaking about earlier. You know, it's not kind of like a cookie cutter, uh, situation. Every Iron Fist is different. Different in the way they go about their business. Different in what they believe in. Uh, you know what's important to them. And um, you know she was willing to leave it all for for her love. And I thought it was interesting that they said that you know in the beginning they mentioned she was the first female Iron Fist, and then in the end they mentioned that she was the last female Iron Fist. And it, I, I thought it was kind of like a dig at like she left the situation for her love and like, you know, one of those things like the president can't be a woman because she'll be too emotional. Like, you know, like that sort of thing. I got that, I got that vibe from it. Like maybe they didn't think it was the best idea for a female iron fist. Great travel form and art in this issue too. It's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And travel Foreman took over when they switched, uh, writers, he took over the art duty. So it's been travel form and art now in the current, uh, books. All right, dudes. Um, we ran kind of long here, but I'm I'm really happy with it. Again, I've been waiting to cover this for a long time. But um, you know, does anybody have any final words or ratings or anything? Yeah, I'll I'll jump in first here. Now, you know, we've been doing the the, the program here for about a year. This is the first book that I've read cold that we've gone over. I mean, everything from you know New Frontier to of course Green Lantern and Kingdom Come and everything, you know, I've, I've gone over. So this is kind of, you know, the first, uh, you know, my toe in the water with a book that was completely and totally unknown. And I just want to say and give credit where credit is due, John, that this is an awesome pick. And I would have never thought that I would love a book so much. And just be like, you know, just smile when you sit on your bookshelf because this is far and away, um, you know, the, the Daredevil Brubaker this is far and away the, the Daredevil cap, you know, the uh, the Brubaker cap as well, because I just really feel, you know, strongly, and I think that the art completely carries the book, although paired with excellent storytelling as well. And it's really cool, and thanks for letting me know about it, because I don't think I'd have it any other way. I'm, I'm not going to follow it monthly, but I'll definitely stick to, um, you know, uh, getting it probably in the omnibus format. I mean... Also, you know, that kind of caught my eye with the, which we'll talk about in two weeks here, the Immortal Weapons. Uh, you know, they have one-shots that are coming out right now. And the cover work to that stuff is pretty amazing, too. And I don't know, it's just, it's, it looks like it's a good time to be an Iron Fist fan. Um, they've really, you know, dug deep into the character. And I think um, the Seven Cities of Heaven, which we're going to get to in two weeks, is I, I, I enjoyed that more than this first one, the last Iron Fist story. 
But uh, again, this is probably I don't know. I'd probably give this like four out of five stars. Pretty good. Highly recommended. I um I just want to jump in quick off of what Adam said because I'm coming from the exact opposite end of it. I've been cold on pretty much every book we've covered except this. So, you know, this is the one that I can constantly pick up and I have. You know, like sure I read some of the stuff that we covered and then I'll read it again when we cover it, but I, I don't find myself going back and reading things over and over as, as much as I've done this. So I'm really – I'm happy that uh, I had a really good time talking about it. And you know I, I kind of get the feeling of how you guys feel when you cover like Green Lantern or when Russ does X-Men or, or something like that. So I got a real charge out of this. Um, and I'm really glad that the guys that I did get to pick it up enjoyed it You know because it's not a cheap venture either. So I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to recommend something that would put a hole in your pocket and you really didn't love. So I'm glad it turned out. For me, I give it a solid five out of five. When I have, when I get a book and I really have a hard time putting it down and have to physically stop reading it, so um, you know I'm not up till two, three in the morning and can get up and go to work. That's a good read. And I really had a hard time putting this book down and not wanting to blaze through it um, really fast. So I read it in a very rel- in a relatively short period of time. You know, two, three read, you know, two, three days. Um, and I was done, which is kind of sad and, and makes me sad and happy at the same time. Um, but I, I you know, kind of like Caps, uh, Brubaker's Cap, th- this book just really sucked me in. Um, and I, I just, I love when they take um, an old concept and are able to turn it around into something new and make it even more interesting than it than it was. Um, and I think Brubaker and Fraction have really, um, really hit it out of the park with this and Ajna's art. Um, and, and the changing styles and, and the inserting the, the generational aspect of it just really, really worked. So, yeah, this, this for me is a solid five. Jim? Yeah, yeah, I'd give it a five out of five as well. I really enjoyed the art. I really enjoyed the storytelling. This is a character I had a lot of uh, affection for to begin with and uh, a lot of history with, you know, as far as my Marvel reading back in the day. And to see them, like, totally take what essentially was like a 70s, exploitation of the popularity of kung fu and really give it this you know this depth this history this legacy and um it's just really great and the, the dialogue was was awesome the uh the the supporting cast pitch perfect like i said you know luke cage and the heroes for hire it was great that they brought them in and acknowledged you know the history of the character they brought the steel serpent back from the original run um i i give this a five out of five and i'm, I'm very glad I read it all in one sitting because I don't think I would have been real happy waiting each month for the story to be told, especially once I got into the Tournament of Heaven story and and all that. I just really enjoyed it. Total page turner, and I recommend it without reservation. Uh, Thank you for turning me on to it, John. You're welcome. And I give it a six out of five. Oh, you dirty rock. Um, we're going to get into some quick comments here from our last two episodes. We've been uh, a little neglectful about folks on the board, so I'm going to bust through these pretty quick here. First of all, uh, I want to say thanks to Max Hedrum. Uh, this is about the Captain America Omnibus Part 2 episodes that rusted. Uh, Max says, great two-parter dudes on Cap. There was a flying car reference only in Reborn Number 2, so you got to know that Rubaker loves the flying car. He also says that his first memory of the flying car from Cap dates back to Thor Number 337, when Nick Fury picks up Donald Blake. So that seems to be a tradition of hilariousness in Marvel. And also, um, Atomic99, a.k.a. our buddy Ralph, out there on the <clears throat> far reaches of the message board, says, 
Another excellent episode, gentlemen. I've often wondered if the Brubaker run reads better in the omnibus format. Sometimes issue by issue, after a month's wait, the story felt slowed down at times, perhaps to align itself with the events in Civil War. One day I'll get around to reading, rereading the run. Ralph goes on to say that, sure, Civil War would have, uh, could have been more powerful an ending, but the death of Captain America was most definitely Brubaker's thing that happened to tie in nicely to Marvel's big event. He had been building it up for two years in the regular title. Um, there was a rumor that Captain America would die at the end of Civil War, and I know I breathed a sigh of relief when that didn't uh, happen, only to have the old bait-and-switch pulled on me with Cap number 25. I can't tell you how many times number 25 has been reprinted. I think uh, I even have a German and Spanish version in my collection. Comic shops were given the heads up about number 25 and that something big was going to happen and to order heavy but no details. Except for Wizard, who seemed to have a buttload of issues ready for sale on eBay that day in March 2007. I think something crazy was going on there. Bucky was the obvious choice to replace Steve Rogers, and I also think he is the right choice. We'll see what happens to him after Reborn. Thanks for the Cap-centric episodes. Now, let me tell you something about Ralph here. First of all, Ralph knows his business, and I've, I didn't even know that Ralph listened to our show, and I really, look at, I really take that as a compliment. Um, if you listen to Jamie's Essentials, Episode 2, um, uh, Jamie uh, D. from Comic Geek Speak and uh, Ralph Guest's host, and they pretty much go in and cover uh, Cap's entire history for about three hours. So they have outdone us and Raging Bullets. Congratulations to those two. So check out that, uh, that uh, episode from CGS. Uh, Ralph does an awesome job, as does Jamie. And lastly, I want to get to episode three, 53 comments. This was uh, last week's episode, All-Star Superman, Volume 2. Daryl from Comic Book Road Show. What else does he do? DeFixer's Hideout. Daryl's got a new show coming up too. Says, great episode as usual. I've been a Superman fan uh, since a little before John Burns' Man of Steel. I'm also Frank, uh, Frank Quietly in JLA version of Morrison, meaning the not-so-weird Morrison we got with Final Crisis. I was excited until I read the first three issues, and I was kind of underwhelmed by the stories, and I'm not sure why. After I read the entire 12-issue run, I was still not that thrilled with it, but I acknowledge it's a well-written story. It just seemed to be all over the place for me. I feel like they were cramming too many ideas into too many issues. And I think we talked about that in just a little bit. Um, one last comment from our buddy Chris Beckett. Um, Chris loved the episode. He'd actually forgotten until this popped up on his iTunes that we did the first volume of our Star, All-Star Soups. And again, that's episode uh, 23 from last year. And he really enjoyed this and helps that it... Uh, and go back to those issues as he listened. He has to read them all over again. And he, if you check out the forums at thecomicforums.com, Chris posted some excellent links that are, I'm going to say, pretty awesome annotations for the Morrison Quietly All-Star Superman run that we just finished up. So thanks, guys, for posting. Thanks to Dan and Frank again for donating. We appreciate that, certainly. And, John, if you want to give us a heads up on what's coming up in the next couple of weeks, that would be amazing, and we can call it a night. Sure. Next week we have a wild card episode. I think tentatively right now it's our villains show, um, but you never know with the wild cards. If something comes up that uh, we want to quick cover or change our minds or maybe just talk comics or whatever, that'll be, that'll be next week. Uh, then we will run Iron Fist uh, Part 2, which is, like we've been saying, the seven capital cities of heaven. Uh, and then the following week, I'm going to say is a one-shot. I'm thinking maybe The Goon. Yep, we've got uh, The Goon, Nothing But Misery. And last episode, we asked you, John, to give us kind of a quick heads-up on Iron Fist. And I'm going to ask the same to Jim. 
Uh, Jim, so everybody has a chance to run out and buy or borrow Goo Nothing But Misery. Can you give us a very bare-bones plot synopsis of what's up with Eric Powell's book? Imagine, <clears throat> excuse me, imagine an EC comic from the 50s uh, populated by characters from a Warner Brothers uh, Looney Tunes cartoon while done on mescaline. Ah. <laughs> Basically, it's the story of a big, strong lug named the Goon and his buddy Frankie and their misadventures in a waterfront populated by uh, gypsies and zombies and zombie priests and uh, giant and one-eyed spiders who cheat at cards and stuff like that. It's uh, super quirky, kind of a horror twist, kind of a, a grotesque humor. And uh, I'm really looking forward to doing it. It's a great comic, and I can't wait for the movie, too. Awesome. Very cool. We'll have to uh, check that out. I know I'm going to be picking that up in a little bit right after we finish up with Iron Fist. So, John Rush, do you guys have anything else before we get out of here? No, I think we're good. Yeah, let's, let's do it. All right. Well, first of all, thanks to John for taking us through Mortal Iron, Iron Fist. Um, the last Iron Fist story by Brubaker, Aja, and also Matt Fraction. Make sure to check out our website. It's hhwlod.com. Make sure to check out Brad Frank, Frank and Bill's podcast, Half Hour Wasted. You can listen to those guys on Mondays. You can listen to us on Thursdays. Be sure to donate to the, uh, help out our buddy John Ostrander. You can check out his website that he's got up and running to help him fight glaucoma at comicsforsight.com. Check out gypsycafe.net if you're in Pittsburgh, if you're in Hungary, and if you uh, want to go talk to Jim at Geek Brunch. And we will see you next week with Bad Guys. Good night, everybody. Take care.